Welcome to the Flawed, Foolish and Fantastic podcast. I want to uh, welcome you to the Flawed, Foolish and Fantastic podcast. Flawed and Foolish and me and him sat over there. Actually, we've got two two fantastics today. We've got Ludwig sat in the back already, um, painting me half naked or whatever she's doing. <laughs> and uh, obviously, by her saying we've got you here today, you are our fantastic guest for the day. Um, there's a variety of topics that I'd love to speak to you about with regards to both your work, your childhood, your social media stuff. I think it's very interesting. Um, and obviously, we learned quite a bit about you from last week with uh, with Ludwig's conversation as well. Um, so if you are happy to go, one, I just want to welcome you to the podcast. Two, you had no choice on the podcast. Uh, yep, that's true. We were going to rock up here anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's even better because Ludwig's looking after my kids as well, so it's even great. So no, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on. And if you're happy, can we uh, yep. delve into your life? More than happy. Yep. That's fine. First question, it's usually most difficult for people. And it is about yourself. Who is Harpreet Singh? Brilliant question to start with. Obviously, last week I saw Bali attempt to answer this question. Before I do actually get into that question, I do. I just want to say that flawed, foolish, and fantastic. Fantastic name, great name um, for a podcast. I think, like you know, who is Harpreet Singh? I think he's a combination of all three. Yeah. Um, a nice little mix, you know, swaying in and out, and I could do something that is deemed fantastic to one person, but flawed to another. Yeah. And I, I think that's the most beautiful thing about sort of life yeah. itself. But who is who is Harpreet Singh? So I give you a very basic definition, like you know, I'm just a average 33 year old sick male living in Wolverhampton, which is where we are today. For those people who have tuned into this podcast, um, and before you ask, this is the weather all year round in Wolverhampton. Um, <laughs> so if you're thinking about your next vacation, do come down. You know, uh, drop me a message. <laughs> But, um, it's a shit hole. But, <laughs> but yeah, so in terms of like my claim for fame, I would say that in Wolverhampton there's a really nice takeout place called Veggie Lounge. Okay. And there's a sort of a dish on the menu that's named after me. Well, it's not on the menu, it's off the menu. Okay. But if you go into Veggie Lounge any day of the week, it doesn't matter who's working there, and you say, can I have the Happy Sing special? Okay. They'll be like, yeah, safe, five minutes. And uh, what is the Happy Sing special? So they do a sort of vegan battered fish and chunky chips. Okay. But I don't really feel the chunky chips too much, you know, they're a bit too chunky. So I, s- I swap them with chili cheese fries, you know. That's so good. nice because they've got decent fries. All takeouts have these frozen fries and they hit or miss. But with Veggie Lounge, I don't know where they get their frozen fries from. <laughs> but uh, their quality and, and the cheese is good and the, the chili sauce isn't too chilly. Yeah. So yeah, so that's just a top tip. If you really want to get to know Harpreet Singh, come to Wolverhampton and order the Happy Singh special. Um, I guess the reason why I'm actually here on this podcast, a lot of people probably tuning in are like, who is this guy? You either know me or you don't. I do have a bit of a social media presence um, and so it's more private now than it used to be but through my social media presence people kind of got to know me and they they know that I talk about things such as you know mental health inclusion sometimes politics a lot of times religion religion and faith um, and because of that I guess I'm a little bit known by some people um, if you followed me about 10 years ago on Facebook I don't know if you remember there used to be like a bio that you could manually type in yeah, yeah people would put in like song lyrics or whatever, um, movie quotes, et cetera, et cetera. And I put something in 10 years ago and it did last the test of time in, in the sense that I didn't change it until Facebook got rid of it. But I wrote on there that I'm just another lost soul waiting to be reunited with his beloved. Yeah. And so on a deeper level, if you ask me who is Harpreet Singh, I would say I'm no different to you in the sense that, you know, we're all souls looking to go home. Yeah. And that is who I am underneath. But on the surface level, I'm obviously a guy who wears sunglasses a lot in the, in the garden. A guy who has a lot of mink blankets and, uh, and things like that. So you're still on your journey like, like the rest of us? 
Well, yeah, we're still here, aren't we? <laughs> no, we can be. Okay, deep level. Yeah, we'll, we'll, say, we'll save that for, le- for later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to sit here on a podcast and say, no, I've made it. You know, I'm not Jim Carrey. <laughs> no, that's true. <Okay>. No. <coughs> well, obviously, you told us you were born and bred here. I wasn't, so, I wasn't, no. So, no, um, I, I, so tell me about your background. Tell yeah, me about your upbringing. Childhood, I was born in uh, Derby. So, oh, all the Derby. Shout out to the Derby Mandem. Oh, but I didn't get. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to live there very long. I was there for uh, about eight or nine months and then we moved to Wolverhampton. So uh, in terms of like background, I think childhood is a great question to ask somebody yeah. for two reasons. One, it forms the foundations of who that person actually is. And, and two, I don't, I don't think we talk about our childhood enough. You know, a lot of people out there, they, it's all a blur. But if you really start reminiscing, you need to, you know, because that's the foundation stage of who you are today. And it's, it's very important to know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know I've just cut you off, but within the police context, we do debriefs on individuals. And the first thing we ask is, tell me about your childhood, tell me about your background, tell me about your schooling. And from there, we can then interject and realise this is the point you're going to criminality, or this is the point that we as society, or we as all these establishments failed. And then you can see where they're going. With us, it's the, what we're looking for is what point in your childhood did the light bulb turn on? And make you who you are. Brilliant. I'm glad. I'm glad you clarified that, so I don't criminalise myself here. Um, but yeah, so, so in terms of childhood, like a background, so it all <coughs> obviously starts with your parents. So my mom, born in India, she had six sisters, all so you know, all daughters in that household. But my nana was like a proper sound guy. He, he would say that I've got like seven stars here, sitare, right? Um, like no guys. Yeah, so he pretty, said, pretty pretty much. Yeah, I don't know if my nana was the same person, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So she's from that background, um, and then my dad was born here, albeit his parents were born in, in India and they migrated here. So my daya was born in India and then they migrated here. And on his side of the family, I think he's got about three or four brothers, yeah. about three or four sisters. So big big families, right? Yeah. And then uh, my mom, at the age of fifteen, sixteen, she got married to my dad here, but it was on the premise that you know let's just kind of get him him married off. Yeah. To to because so, he was a bit of a sort of troublesome child, and so that's the sort of environment in terms of parental environment that I was born in. And if I was to sort of describe my childhood and upbringing in two words, I would say it's a lot of love and a lot of pain. Yeah. Um. And and you know every time I I think back about the past, I always think about you know the great times and and the bad times. So the great times were, you know, I was born in and the ta- the time when there was still a bit of ikdai within the Punjabi community. Yes. So I was born in '88, late '80s. I saw the beautiful 90s as well <coughs> and uh, if there was a sort of <laughs> a defining feature of sort of the, my family and if not all the Punjabi community at the time we had those long sofas that if you lift it up they've got like a bit of storage underneath yeah, yeah. and then if you pull it you can lie well, down on it, it. yeah, yeah. and obviously when you lift it up there's always going to be sort of jadra there's going to be mink blankets like this pillows and, and yeah. things like that and we would always have a cabinet as well that was just full of sort of blankets and uh, pillows and, and a lot of people if you, if you don't know where I'm going with this, the reason for that is because people would stay over. Yes. You know, people would come visit. There weren't many cars uh, and people had a lot more time on the weekend. So all, all their annual leave and holidays and they would come over and just stay around for ages. Yeah. Um, people living in the UK, people coming from abroad. And so I grew up in a, you know, a household, um, a family environment where we would always have people staying over. And, and that was just fantastic, you know, being around so many different people. Um, that if I was to give an example of just how close we were as, as, a, as a sort of family, my dad would live in Derby, we'd live in Wolverhampton. Yeah. Mum didn't have a car, you know, um, and dad wasn't really around. And he would, my dad would come from Derby to here, A38, about an hour's drive, pick us up, 
take us back to Derby, yeah. and then we'll stay there for a few days, and then he'll drop us off, and then and then go back home himself, right? And and that's almost unheard of now. No, you know, happen, pe people it? just don't do these things. But the type of environment we were in, it was like this is absolutely fine. You know, we want you to come over. Yeah. Whereas now it's like you got to make an appointment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know, and, and don't overstay your. Yeah, your, if you overstay, you're welcome. You've Put, put somebody out exactly yeah don't obviously say you're welcome and yeah so from a childhood perspective there was a lot of love a lot of ikhtar in that sense but then if i flip it in terms of the pain so i was the the youngest child so i've got three older sisters and i don't think it was really a, a family that was trying for a boy in that sense i know people always assume that straight away um, um they, they need a son or whatever exactly but they weren't like unhappy that they had a yeah. boy you know they're like you know i came out they're like wow he's got he's got genitals at an angle yeah exactly. and all of a sudden this is gonna make a lot of people happy um truth be told i don't think my parents actually wanted me because by that point my older sister's 10 years older by that point when they had the three daughters I think <coughs> they were like set look our marriage isn't great we're yeah. not gonna have any more kids but then as god will have it <coughs> I, I kind of came in, came into this world, yeah. um, and then when I come in, came into that world, into that environment, <coughs> being the youngest, I was spoiled. And there's this sort of a, a poem written by Anis Mujgani, mm. and he, he he sort of dedicates the poem to a lot of people throughout. And he, he talks about um, these are for the kids who are told speak only when spoken to, and then are never spoken to. Yeah. And that line really resonates with me because I felt like that was my childhood. You know, I was told to just be quiet and only talk when I'm spoken to. But nobody would speak to me, yeah. you know, and, and as a result, I would talk to myself a lot. I'd have a lot of imaginary toys. Yeah. I'd have action man and teddy bears wrestling, you know, doing all sorts of uh, playing around and being creative with that. Hold on. Yeah. Wrestling's not imaginary. No, of course not. Really? Okay, of course not. Fine. Yeah. That's all right. Wrestling's not. But what I <laughs> did in with the teddy bears and action men. I thought was I was going to have to cancel this then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a stage to cut it off. That would have been it. Sorry. Can't do anymore. Yeah. But yeah so, like, you, so, so you basically, like, like every parent does, you're not to talk but like you said you had nobody to talk to i had nobody to talk to yeah being one of the youngest and some of the relatives that i did have that were my age that i could speak to on a level and i would say on a level but yeah. kids talk about anything and everything but when i was about five my parents got divorced okay and that was huge for yeah. me because these i had these siblings that were of my age i had my school friends but siblings uh, i'm sorry cousins if you would i always say cousin brother cousin sister yeah, yeah, and they, uh, you know the teachers at school didn't understand what, what i meant by that they go they're either your cousin or your brother i go no, but they're my cousin brother you know because yeah, yeah. it's a bit more of a closer relationship to us and and all, so all of a sudden i wasn't allowed to talk these lot to, to these lot anymore because during a divorce people pick sides for whatever reason yes and i had some connection with that side of the family because my dad's older brother married my mom's older sister okay. so i've got a diana massey yeah and um, so there was still some connection with there but it was a bit painful you know i couldn't really speak to these lot and then when i was 10 i think at that point is when i really started to realize what well, life isn't as great as it could be because my older sister actually passed away oh, and that was the one time when all the family kind of got together after after since the divorce yeah and here's me thinking this is going to last forever but as soon as the funeral ended they all went out and didn't see yeah. him again you know so that for me that sort of aspect of childhood it wasn't that great but other aspects were fantastic and mm. I guess I was trying to sort of ignore as a kid as you try to do shut out the sort of pain that's going on and just distract yourself and so I had a great childhood from a, a social perspective because I was always outside playing and this might be like groundbreaking to some kids watching now yeah it is today. I left the house and <coughs> I went out to play you know yeah. I know kids can't do that anymore for some reason but I would have a bike I'd cycle around every time come back for lunch go back out come back for dinner you know and i would do that and my summer holidays were spent really sort of playful uh, like that and but there was no phone you yeah. were, you just went out like we used to and then you get back going 
Where have you been? It's been like 10 hours. Exactly, yeah. I remember one time, mum sent out a search party. <laughs> yeah. I was about, probably about 10 or 11, and I actually went to my friend's house, who's just up the road here. Okay. And I knew that they had a clock in the house, and I just yeah. said, could you tell me when it's six, because that's my time to come in. Yeah. Um, and I must have like longed it out a little bit till about five past six or something. And then when I went down <laughs> the road, like every neighbor's out looking for me. I go, what are you guys doing? They go, we're looking for you. I go, I was just up the road. You know, I know what I know. What, I know how to tell the time. Yeah. I want to come back for six anyway. But uh, yeah, so that that was that was my childhood. Nice little mix of love and and pain. So your childhood after divorce, your sister's already ten years older than you. I'm guessing a lot of the time was you, mum. Was it you and mum, or your sister still there as a kid? Yeah. So in this house that we're obviously recording from, yeah. um, you know, at some point like for the first few years, I think my dad tried to live here but he was always in and out doing his yep. own thing right and he wanted a different life and yeah. so he he wasn't here and then when mom officially got divorced i never saw him ever again and I, i'll be yeah. truth be told i have very few memories of him That's i have one memory of him seeing him at the funeral and i was making a comment about his hair because it was like really spiky yeah and i have another memory of when he picked me up from school once right i must have been really young about three or four right mm. nursery age and our school's just literally up walking distance from here right okay. at my primary school that i went to and uh every day mom would be there picking me up you know she'd finish work a little bit early pick me up and then go back to work after but all of a sudden this guy's here yeah. and he's like i'm here to pick you up and i was really confused as a kid and he's got grabbed me by the hand and he started walking and there's two gates at a golf home park primary where, where i went to sort of school the back gates which is just right here by a house and then the front gates which is on the other side and if you're there you have to walk all the way around so we would always come through the back gate <coughs> yeah. and he held my hand and he's taking me to the front gate because this guy brought his car okay yeah, yeah? and um i'm just like panicking i think that's probably the the earliest signs of maybe like a panic attack or, or severe anxiety because i one i barely knew this guy two he's taking me somewhere else and I, I know hearing about strangers picking up kids vaguely i kind of understood it so I let go of his hand and I legged it to the back gates. Yeah. Right, I didn't even look back once in it. And he shouted my name. He's happy, come here, come here. And I ran, yeah. got through the back gates, kept on running, came to the house, sat on the front door, and I thought, uh oh, what, what do I do yeah. now? I can't get in. I ain't yeah. got the keys. And then about ten minutes later, that his car comes up and he comes out of the car. He's like proper angry at me, like in it. Like, why did you run away from me? Why did you do this? Took me inside, like smacked me up a little bit. And then he said, go put on your pajamas. And I, th I think at this point, I think I knew that, you know, this guy has no clue who I am like, or what yeah. I do in this household. It's like half past three. Man's don't, put their, man's don't put their pajamas on till at least seven or eight, yeah? And, and, and so, like, that, I have very few memories of him, but I remember that one and that, that sort of scene of just running away because I had no relationship with this guy, you know? Yeah. So how... It's difficult to talk about. How did that affect your childhood? Or was it... Not, it didn't really matter because he wasn't there? Um, it, it did. It did matter in the sense that all my friends had dads. Yeah. I think it was one kid whose dad passed away, and I kind of related to him on a level. But even even still, he had a relationship with his dad. When, yeah. when you know, and so like my mom would always say like, "I need a dad. I need a dad." And I would say things like that, like, "You ain't my dad. Where's my dad?" Etc. Yeah. And in the household, the dynamics was, was actually very interesting, and I, I'm very grateful that to some extent that there wasn't any male figures there, purely because I was heavily influenced by women. Yeah. In the sense that I would watch all the Bollywood films. <coughs> You know, Shah Rukh Khan films, Salman Khan films. I was on it, and 90s was the decade. After that, went straight it's downhill. Tanked after that. Went straight downhill. I wouldn't recommend any film in the 2000s. But, um, but yeah, so like I, w I was influenced like that. But then there's all sorts of dynamics going on because my oldest sister 
and the one younger than that, they were so you know they get into teenage years now. Mm, yeah. Mum was always working, and they were obviously getting influenced by all sorts of uh, yeah, social issues. Social, yeah, yeah. yeah. Social and they went to yeah. a school that wasn't that great. Yeah. And so mum, mum would constantly get problems and problems, and it got to a point where you know they'd always bicker and, and fight, like physically fight between themselves, and I would just leg it into the other room upstairs somewhere and just kind of ignore it. Yeah. But then it got to a point one day, my oldest two sisters are packing the bags, and I'm like, where they're going? And mum's like, they're going to live with your dad. And I was like, who? Yeah, you know, I didn't know we had a kind of dad like in it, and then and they, and they kind of left. And looking back now, I can't speak for anyone, um, but my understanding from my perspective is that I think the dynamics got a bit too much for mum. Yeah, because my older sisters were probably saying things like, "Oh, we want to live with dad," mm-hmm. and then she's like, "You if you want to go, you go." And it, I, I remember one thing actually: two days after they left, they came back and knocked on the door, and they cut their hair because mm. they had long case at the time, and they had they cut their hair. One of them got a nose piercing. And my mum was like, look, if you're, if you're gone, you're, gone, you're yeah. gone. I don't want you I don't want you coming back. And one time we were walking on Dudley Road, one of the, where the shops are here. Yeah. And I saw my older sister. Mm. And this is the one who passed away, uh, probably about a couple of years before she passed away. Why? And I waved at her. And mum was like, don't wave at her. <coughs> you know, mum knew how to hold a grudge. Uh, she, she, bless her now, obviously her heart softened. And, and she, <coughs> before my older sister passed away, she got a rishta again. But... You know, at that moment in time, mum knew how to hold a grudge and she was teaching oh, me how to hold a grudge. You're hurt, you're hurt. Isn't it? Yeah, she, she was she, hurt. She was She's her mum. Exactly, she was hurt. And yeah, so there's little aspects like that in terms of the dynamics of the house. Yeah. That, you know, it, I would say it's very much a broken home and naturally you can, you know, have to be a genius to know if it's a single mum looking after four kids. Yeah, it's difficult. Poverty as well, like not, yeah. not, not a lot of like all my friends had good clothes. I didn't have them. I didn't get decent trainers. Yeah. And by decent, I mean a branded trainers. I didn't get them till about at least year nine or ten. Yeah, uh, I can I can totally understand. You know, and yeah. all my sh- all my shoes were like from the shoes like shoes on, like shoes the, owns the, 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 and yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. So so yeah, there were, there were so many types. Although I tried to block things out, there were some things I just couldn't avoid, like yeah. you, know, you know, social pressures of people having dads and them taking them to football games, and I'm, I don't I'm not having that. Yeah. I don't have that at all. And then they have a bit more money, and they can wear decent clothes and and trainers, and I don't have that. You know. Yeah. And that sounds harsh. Um, I will break that down, but the next question might hit into it. You've mentioned on your social media before, and you've talked about this on a podcast I've listened to. Well, we'll talked a lot recently about um, your history with alcoholism. Yep. When did that develop? So, you know, you don't have to be a genius to know that this kid in this environment, yeah, this exactly. is your police so investigation here, right? Is going to go one of two ways, right? Yeah. And for me, I guess I'm lucky we moved away from Dar because a lot of my cousins did get into al- alcohol, did get into, they started smoking and then a lot of them got into sort of problems as well, like yeah. fights and whatnot, right? I was kind of away from that because f- me growing up, there was no sort of uh, backup. And what I mean by backup is when you're at school, people didn't mess with you if you had an older brother. Yeah, of course. I didn't have one, Yeah. right? I didn't have any relatives. I had no backup, right? Yeah. So because of that, I had to keep low and I didn't get into too many fights, which was great. But the pain was still there of that childhood that I just kind of mentioned. So for me, I couldn't use fighting as an outlet, which a lot of my sort of peers used. Yeah. And so I started using alcohol as an outlet. And when it all started, I think I was about 15 years of age. And I remember when I was about 14, I went to stay at my, my tires at Derby. Um, and I was there for about a week and a bit. And I remember I was wearing a pajama when I went there. And by the time I was coming back, that pajama was jack up. Like okay. proper high up yeah and i went from something like five foot six to six foot in the space of that week oh, yeah and so by 14 years of age i was already six foot yeah you know? and people knew what how old i was but then at social functions now all of a sudden i'm not at the kiddie table yeah exactly. i'm not in the kiddie room right 
Um, I am now able to stand with the men who are having a session, potentially in the garden, at the front of the house, whatever. Yeah. And I was 15 years old when I had my first alcoholic drink. And um, it was a 60th birthday party, I remember it, mm. in West Brom. You know, the land of dreams, West Brom, right? Shit on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of my sort of mama, like that, but he was only a couple of years older than me. And he was drinking. He goes, you're poor, happy, you're drinking. And they got one of those sort of white plastic cups, standard pour this much whiskey into it yeah. and then fill the rest up with coke oh. and they're like here you go drink that and then I drank it I only had the one and it didn't get me drunk drunk but it got, me, it got me onto the level where I felt a little different than I was mm. right um, and I'm thinking yo I'm drinking with the, the men now this is amazing and then um, mum came and we're going home she, she's kind of drive home by this point she had a car so we're driving home and I'm just like looking at the window looking at the lampposts go by <laughs> and thinking these are like amazing lampposts you know? okay. check out these lampposts look how bright they are man uh, do we have these in Wolverhampton I've never seen lampposts before and suddenly the, that, my outlook on life started to be so much more better because I was ever so slightly tipsy right? Yeah. ever so slightly we would, I would say buzzing yeah. for those who, who drink alcohol would know yeah, yeah. you know you get buzzing and from then on I decided you know what I like alcohol um, I know that there was an issue with my dad being you know, addicted to alcohol to some extent and yeah. he would become violent, but I don't feel violent. And so for me, I'm thinking, well, it's, it can't be that bad. And then slowly but surely at age 15, I started drinking more and more social functions again, just a little bit and then trying to increase it. But I never got to the point where I was drunk where my mum would find out. Okay. But the problem where it really got sort of problematic was when I was 16 years of age and you get that national insurance card come through. Yeah, and yeah. You're allowed to work at this point. Um, a local sort of sweet centre on Dudley Road started hiring young boys to do catering and catering is a simple gig you know you, you get chucked in the back of a van at like 6-7 in the morning yep. you go to a party you give out some food you clean up the barn there and then you come back out to back to the sort of sweet centre unload the dishes cash and go, go home cash in hand and it was yeah. a good gig to be fair but if you work 12 hours probably about 30 quid a day yeah you can't so, fall that so as a kid yeah 16, 16 years of age you know you're working 60-70 quid a weekend right so a decent amount of money but the reason it became problematic <laughs> was because at every function which was often Punjabi yep. what are you going to find? alcohol alcohol right and um, so between ourselves we sort of made it a game how many bottles can we nick? Yeah, yeah. And I say Nick in the sense that <coughs> is it stealing? Is it not? I don't know. The, the, we can have a philosophical debate about if it is stealing when it's free. I think it was. Um, no, if it's free, it's not an offence. Yeah. The, the offence, legislative. If anything is free, so you go to a counter, they're giving out something free, and it says you can take one for free, and you fill your pockets and take twenty. Yeah. There's no offence there. Okay, sweet. So I can die in peace now. You can, Fantastic. There's I'm, no offence. There's no offence there. I'm glad you clarified so that. So we're good then. Yeah, yeah. So it, so I'll tell you all the loopholes. I'll get you to everything. <laughs> yeah, we'll do another podcast about yeah, don't that. Worry. How to legally get away with stealing <laughs> stuff. But um, but yes, like so some functions, it was actually quite funny because then we'd have like really nice uncles like, you know, you want a shot? I'll pour you a shot. Like, in it, not knowing that we just jacked like 20 bottles, you know, we've got, got it in the van already. <laughs> but um, one, I remember one function, there was like an upstairs and a downstairs hall and we did the one party and then another party yeah. and one of the parties was like a Liverpool fan and they were singing Never Walk Alone and, oh and that was the opportune time right yeah. as soon as that song went on all the Liverpool fans were like hands in the air looking at God or whatever yeah. bottles just taken right we'd nick 45 bottles in that day <laughs> we're talking Bacardi Shivas Regal yeah. uh, Smirnoff Red and the Blue one you know some, some, yeah. de some decent liquor here and then one of my mates whose mum didn't mind him drinking he would just, would just stash at his house and that was set because then we could have a session every time after catering yeah. during the week during the half term the summer holidays and, and then slowly but surely 
drinking became really really problematic because okay. I was drinking more than I should have. Yeah. You don't need to drink an awful lot to feel good, but I was drinking past that point. Yeah. Because the more I drank, the more I felt n- that, that that numbness was kind of going away. Yeah. And I had several circles of friends that would drink, so I'd have a session one day. What's there or recovering hungover? I'd have another session and another, and it would go. And whiskey was one drink that I could drink in abundance. And I'm talking a 70 cl bottle. I could deck it. Mm. It got to the point. And so I'm 17, yeah. 18 years age now. People yeah. are just starting to drink, and I'm already, you know, a veteran of drinking, yeah. right? And my body was like, you know, not not pleased with that because at football I was absolutely terrible because I just felt like trash because yeah. I was always eating junk food and then I was, you know, drinking this alcohol. Um, and there's, like, there's another incident I remember actually, we would always have a session and I was a happy drunk, you yeah. know, I would be really happy and friendly and just happy that people are here and they're happy. And then eventually we'd all get drunk to the point where we would start opening up about the issues that we'd have. And then we wake up the next morning forgetting what we just went through. (coughs) But we'd all say that was a great session. So the great sessions were actually the ones where we had therapy, (coughs) (laughs) you know, social therapy with with one another. Uh, But sometimes when we would have a a session, I would get to a point where I just get up and run. Okay. You know, so it actually links back to the the story I told earlier. I would just run and uh, in any direction and then somehow I'd end up home and people would always be like happy. I don't know how you got home. I don't know how you're alive because you ran through busy roads, but you did that. And the first few times I did it, my friends tried to stop me. And after that, they're just like, it's, it's, it's a thing, you know, this guy's just going to get drunk and run away, which is good for them because then it's more, more they alcohol got, left they got enough shalab for them. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So and that's when it started to become really problematic. And, 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 and the, the sort of icing on the cake was when I was getting bottles of whiskey, drinking them at home alone. Okay. This was not a social function anymore. This was me sort of self-harming, if you will, substance yeah, abuse. Numb, numb the pain, numb, numb yeah. the issues and get away from everything that's going on. Exactly, yeah. What about mum? Did mum realise? I guess she would have realised, but was it? Yeah, so when I was 16 to 18, I think once she figured out I was really drunk because (laughs) when I was drunk, I would slur my words. Yeah. And mum would drink like, she's like, where are you? I'm like, mummy, I'm only here. I'm not going to see you. I would speak like that. She clocked on like an edge clocked me at home and just like kind of slapped me up a little bit tried to yeah. discipline me didn't really work I'd still do the same thing when I became 18 she realised look if this guy wants to drink he can drink but she wasn't happy when I got drunk Okay. Um, and there was like a actually when I was I think it was when I was 16 at my nephew's birthday party which people never seem to forget you know the most embarrassing moments right yeah, they, yeah, they will so. never forget them um, and they'll always say I got so drunk I was just puking up everywhere oh. right and yeah. my mum was embarrassed then because there were so many family members there there was one occasion actually when I, I, it really hit me that I was actually hurting my mum here. And I came home drunk, passed out in bed. And again, mum went out with the search party. She, she liked to do this a lot. Going out with the search party, she's like, the car is here, but he's not here. Where could he be? And a couple of hours later, they opened my bedroom and they realized I was there. And I'm like, what? This is like the worst search party in the world. Like first place you look is the bedroom. <laughs> but yeah. it was the last one for them. And she was like shouting at me saying, I'm so embarrassed of you. Why were you even born, etc." To which I, I, I think I responded like, you know why I was born, mum. It's yeah. your fault, you know. Um, and, and I was really drunk that night. And, uh, and when I went to bed, I just conked out. And then I had this dream. I had this dream that I just vomited constantly all over the floor. Yeah. And um, then when I woke up, I saw that there was a pile of clothes on the floor. And I thought that wasn't there when I went to went to sleep. So L- lifted it up, just vomit everywhere. We're talking all everything I had, like peas and jaw or whatever, all on the floor. And this, I, luckily, I woke up before mum, and I like picked it up and I was scrubbing the floor because I was so embarrassed. Yeah, of course, yeah. So yeah. embarrassed. I didn't want mum to see it because then she'll be like, "What have you become?" Yeah, you know. 
yeah so so it's a mom mom was not very happy with it if i'm honest with you and at what point did you realize that it was an issue for you that point when i was drinking by myself okay. you know and that point where i felt every time i was sober i just felt like i was in pain you know yeah. like there was something here there's some weight on my shoulder weight in my mind and it was only alcohol that could do it yeah and every time i drank alcohol i always said the same thing again i'm really going to quit i'm going to quit and i tried to quit yeah. so many times um i think the longest time it was a good couple of months and i felt good and then i just slipped straight back into it yeah. and it was just everything around me relationships with people yeah. trauma from the childhood you know feeling displaced not really knowing who i am why i'm here yeah and every time i felt that way i would just resort to alcohol how long did that continue for so it started age 15 i would yep. say it became problematic age 16 yep until at least i was 20 so four years you know three okay. three and a bit maybe four years did it affect education and uh, work and things like that Ed- education absolutely so um I was a, I was good prior to GCSEs. Yeah. So that was prior to the drinking age in the terms of the SATs we would call them SATs. Yeah, yeah. Smashing it all the time without even trying. I, I had an educational talent. Yeah. It came to GCSE point. I just didn't want to do anything. <coughs> I didn't pay attention in class, and I'm scraping this kid who's ace, used to ace all sort of exams, scraping Bs and Cs now. Okay. Which is still of sort of uh, you know it's still decent because yeah. I'm passing exams without revising and paying attention. Yeah. But I got caught out in A-levels when I am started to get like Fs and Us, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. one exam, mathematics, and this is ironic now because I've got a deg- <coughs> I got a degree in mathematics, but my first mock exam in A-levels, I got 4%. Well, yeah. 4% and the teacher was like, you sure you want to do maths? You no, know? I, I understand that because yeah. the jump from GCSEs to A-levels is massive anyway. Yeah. And you just think, like you said, you're just like, I don't need, I don't need to revise. I can get through this. Exactly. And you hear A levels, you're like, oh sh. Yeah, yeah. Got caught out, and then obviously I was more busy having a session than I was revising. So yeah, I'd, yeah. Education took a beating as well. In terms of work, it was just catering, and I was smart enough not to know not to get drunk during work. Yeah. But it would seep into uh, my other jobs that I did. So I remember one time, Raw Mail. <laughs> I worked there for Christmas period, and we would have a session before. Okay. So, uh, sorry if anyone didn't get any letters in, in that year, but it might have been my fault because I was drunk. You know, I was drunk while I was working. There was one time I was actually drunk in the school. So, when we did A-Levels Economics, which yeah. was at a different school, it was right next to a shop. And a few few of the lads were there. I'm like, let's just have a session. So, yeah. we went and we got some, um, what did we get? Some something super. I can't remember what the actual cider was called. Well, that cat's coming out. Oh, buddy. Sorry, cats. No, it's all right. Cats trying to jump out the window. Yeah, we got, we got. But yeah, got um, potential, potential escapee <laughs> here. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So we, I had a session during that, that, that before that class. Yeah. And I went into class, and my friends were like, "You just need to quiet down, right? You're gonna, he's gonna teach us on the clock on that you're drunk here." Yeah. And and so that was one occasion when I was drunk in, in school as well. You know, so definitely a problem for about three, four years. So, how did you go about resolving it? In terms of stopping alcohol? Yeah, because obviously you've, you've had four years of this yeah. where you've seen this personal issue develop, develop, develop and you know you'll get to that point where you're upsetting mum, embarrassing. Yeah. And I don't know how you felt about it yourself because I know and other people know if you go through that stage you might go, I don't give a shit anymore. You know, you have that moment or you, obviously I'm looking at you now, you're way away from that situation. But at what point did that sort of resolve start to rectify itself and go, I don't want to do this anymore? Yeah, yeah. So to, to some extent, I did get to the point where I stopped caring about other people's feelings, yeah. but never to the point where I left my mum. Yeah. 
Um, and we still now, you know, we live together. Yeah. House share, I would say. <laughs> but um, like, because my oldest, older siblings left, and I know how it worked. Ended up for them. Yeah. And how it hurt mom. So I never had planned to leave, but at the same time, I realized that me staying was really painful for her. Yeah. And so that did have some effect. I wouldn't say it was the reason I stopped drinking alcohol, but I was really glad when I did stop drinking alcohol because yeah. I sorted out that relationship a little bit. You yeah. know, Start, she started to become a little bit more proud of me. But I, I guess the moment it changed, it kind of leads into your next question, which is like, how did you get into sixty? <coughs> That's all. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know whether it's going to lead into that question. It's or sick. It's all day long. You know, uh, <coughs> CQs talk about it all the time. Sicky saves lives. Yeah. One hundred percent saved mine. And if it wasn't for Siki, I don't think I ever would have stopped drinking. Okay. I don't think I would have been here. You know, the state that I was in, mentally speaking, I don't, I don't, I didn't see a future. I didn't see me living past my twenties. You know, um, but Maharaj Girpa Siki came into my life at the opportune time. How? Now, now, now that's going to be your next question. Basically, how do you go from twenty-year-olds? I'm doing catering. I'm doing a bit of studying. I don't know. Did you have any sort of Siki background at the time? Did you have any sort of interest, or how did you come? Full circling Sikhi and change your life, right? Yeah, so it's it's one of those things. When we talk about Sikhi, a lot I know a lot of people don't like the word religion, which I don't agree with personally. I like the word religion. Yes, yeah, so But um, but some people not some people just say faith, right? And if you look at it from a faith angle, I always say that everyone needs someone or something to believe in. Yes. So someone could be you're doing something for your family, right? Um, your friends or just generally society or you got somebody you look up to and you don't want to disappoint them. That's just someone, your reason to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Or you're something and your something is effectively uh, your belief system. It could be your faith, it could be a religion, it could be something that you really want to achieve in life, right? And for me, I was really losing my someone or something because there was nobody that I wanted to like, you know, live for. Yeah. And there's something there. I just felt, I just felt like, why, what is life? You know, what's the point? Mm. You know, and that's that, that's where I was. And then when I started getting introduced into Sikhi, so Sikhi wasn't an alien thing to me at the time, because you know, on my dad's side, like my granddad is Amrit Dari. Okay. Um, on my mom's side, there's a few glimpses. I think we've got like a, a mama, Shankarsu mama. I don't know if you remember the post on Instagram. Uh, yeah, away. He was a he was a good Sikh. You yeah. know, so there there was definitely some Sikhi, but generally being from a, a sort of a lower caste is hit or miss sometimes with the Sikhi as well. Yeah. Because you can either have proper Khalsa Sikhi or you can have sort of a bit of a mix Sikhi. Yeah. You can have go the other way. You can be Hindu, some Muslimani as well, believe it or not, in my, in my family. Um, so th- there's definitely some aspect of faith and I knew kind of what parts were and these type of things. I would go to Punjabi school, hated Punjabi school. Yeah. Absolutely hated it. Had some kind of liked Sikhi a little bit, but it was all a joke for me when we were in the Gurukar. I remember actually it's bad me saying this right I probably got straight to hell for saying no, it no but this, this is what builds you as you are so. yeah yeah we were young Hannah, and yeah. me and a, a few friends were there and then we had like a, one of my friends had a little cousin yeah and he was gonna they were trying to really get the Nojavan on stage to say something right um, <laughs> and they asked him to go on stage they go what do you want to do and he goes I want to say the Panjabiari's name or something so he's saying the Panjabiari's name and then halfway through, he just went, oh, dirty. like, you know, yeah. proper. And yeah. that was the most funniest thing in my life at that moment in time. But it just shows you the level, how sort of detached I was from Sikhi that I didn't feel that it was worthy of respect at the time. Yeah. But there were still Sikhi elements because opposite our road is where the brother of Santa Baba Seva Singh lives. So if you need any, oh, books, I didn't know that. any books or anything. Because uh, I, uh, I see him when at Sajdi Street and things like that. And obviously when Bob Seal sings, you come down, I've met him a couple of times. Yeah, that's And actually it. I saw him, last time I saw him was at Rampur Kira. I met him there. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, so that's the, I would say that's definitely the connection. Um, and uh, <coughs> uh, you know, Maharaj only brings puts Mahapurush on this world to correct you on your path, right? Yeah. The first time Baba Seva Singhji came to our house, I didn't really know who he was, and I didn't really understand anything of why he's here, what he's talking about, or is he worthy of respect. So for the first few years. You know, Baba Seva Singh you know, always asking me how I am, you know, happy singing tea, how does he like in it? And uh, I would say, this guy's a really nice guy, but I don't really know what he stands for, so therefore I'm not going to have any interest in him. And we're just going to do the yeah. ritualistic thing, we'll give him some watermelon, put it on a tal, and then, um, and that's it, right? He's just a random uncle, isn't it? Exactly, you yeah. Treat him no different to but everybody else, you treat him as a relative. Yeah, very, very random. But when they would come over, his mum would come <coughs> over. So, Santa Baba Seva Singh's mum. So, if anyone's okay. actually read the book, Sikh in here. Yeah. Uh, they talk about his mum as well. She was like one of the first to see Baba Hanam Singh Ji and realize this is a Mahapurush and wanting to do seva. Yeah. And so she's got obviously a lot of gamai in terms of that, you know, being a Sanghi of Mahapurush and doing Simran and seva. And she would always like be doing this in Mala. the fingers. Yeah. You know, she's like, if you can't find a Mahapurush, mm-hmm. I remember she, this because. She can't, they can't she, the number of jobs they're doing. It. Exactly. She, yeah. she didn't have a pinky. Yeah. And that's why I remember why she did this because she. She, she would say you could do more than me because you got you got a full pinky right yeah. and she would always come over and she's like you know happy singh is a really good boy and at this point i wasn't yeah. i really wasn't a good boy and she'd always say he's gonna be a sing he's gonna be a sing and so that was the influence and I, I would shrug it off but then when i started to get older and play football um the family there the gurusik family would be like you know come play with us yeah and so when you're playing football with people, you obviously drive to and from the football pitch. Yeah. And uh, they would always talk about Sikhi, right? Because it was casual for them. And I'd just sit there like a Munna, like, you know, okay, I'm not part of this conversation. Yeah. And then they would involve me in the conversation. Yeah. And that was kind of my, you know, avenue getting into this sort of Sangat of Gursiks. And it was through football and it was through Baba Seva Singh Ji coming and through my neighbours being Gursiks, right? Because yeah. prior to that, they didn't really speak to us an awful lot. Like the spot to mum, but they didn't speak to me. But it's when Baba Seva Singh Ji started to come down our house for Langar, that's when I started to get more sort of, you know, I know who these guys are, yeah. let's play football with them, etc. And um, <coughs> little things I remember that they would say, like, you know, um, like nobody wants to be a Gursik anymore, everybody just wants to wear the Kara. Yeah. And I'm looking at my hand as a Kara here, yeah. right? I, I, w- I was so far gone, I would wear Khanda hoodies that yeah. they would give out and I'd have a session in them. That's how bad I was, right? Um, Obviously, I don't do that anymore. But uh, at the time, I, I just didn't think it was a, I didn't think it was a big deal because yeah. it was a hoodie, and I didn't see the link between the two. But then slowly, I started to learn, and there was this one program that would happen at Sajid Street Godra every Wednesday, and it's called Saint Soldiers Youth Forum. Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they 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 ran for a good couple of years. And for me, I'm at rock bottom. You know, I've got an intellectual mind that I can't seem to use. I've got an overactive mind that I can't seem to quieten down. What's the worst that can happen, right? So I started going to these Saint Soldier Youth Forums and the topics were like amazing. Okay. You know, during February they would talk about the game of love. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then that Bhangti about Guru Nanak Deji talks about walking on you know, with your with your head in your hand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so those those type of Bhangti I was start coming out. So I started getting a an insight into Gurbani which I didn't have before. <coughs> and then one thing I really loved about the people there is uh, that they were really blunt in the sense of what Sikhi is. They wouldn't say yeah, no, that's fine. You could do this and that. Like you know, people like Dilasaf. They wouldn't. Yeah. They weren't Dilasaf by any means. And they would say, the first step of Sikhi is taking Amrit. Yeah, yeah. And for me, as a Munna who had no in, <coughs> no sort of desire to become in, get into Sikhi, um, that was planted in my head. And then all of a sudden, I started questioning my actions and what I'm doing. You know, yeah. and I started asking myself the right questions. You know, why are you here? What are you here to do? Why are bad things happening? You know, and the more I learned about Sikhi and Karam, the more intrigued I became with faith. And then I was moving more towards my something to believe in. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, truth be told, I didn't jump straight into Sikhi. It took me a while. But I did start researching all of the religions and faiths. Yeah. And every single one, yeah, they had their great great things in it. They had their flaws as well. as some. I would say the flaws are more in the humans that are actually practicing the faith. Yeah. But nothing really made my hairs on my arms stand up more than Sikhi. Yeah. So I would be at an Islamic talk and they'd talk about the Prophet Muhammad. And it's a great, great talk. That, you know, the great things that they say, they'd recite their Quran and whatnot. Yeah. I didn't feel anything. You know, um, same with Christianity and the Bible, but and and to some ex- to some extent Buddhism as well. But when it came to Sikhi, there's just something resonated so much more with me, and I started thinking, well, actually, Maharaj put me here on this earth in a Sikh family. I understand Punjabi. I'm uh, heritage-wise, it's from Punjab, and the more I learned about it, I just felt like this is for me. Yeah. You know, um, and that's how I kind of got into Sikhi in terms of becoming taking an Amrit. I think that's the point when my alcoholism stopped, right? Okay. Um, but it took me a while to actually start keeping my gears. So how long? So uh, yeah. you, you were drinking alcohol until you were 22, yeah, or about tw- 20 years old. 20 years. Did Sikhi start then, and how long did that? The Saint soldiers and things like that progress. It started before that, so about 18 years old when it started, I think. <coughs> okay. So the point I'm trying to make is it wasn't instant. Yeah, of course, instant, of course, right? yeah, yeah. So at 18 years of old, I started playing football with these lot. I started to understand more about Sikhi. Um, and because I was at university at that point, my mindset had changed and I was trying to focus more more on education. Yeah. And, and in high school, I hated history, but all of a sudden I loved history. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Loved I, si- know, I loved I sick history, right? And so I was learning and learning and I was in the right circles, but I was in uh, sort of a, in a bit of a duality, right? Because yeah. on one side, I'm sessioning and on the other side, I'm going Gurukar. Yeah. And I kind of didn't know which sort of Sangat was mine. You know, I kind of fit in at both because I was accepted there and accepted here. Yeah. But the more I kept going there at to in terms of Sikhi, the less I started going there, okay, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it was more of a transi- transitional sway from here to there. Yeah. And I tried to get my sessioning buddies to come with me and I, I, I was successful during Nagarakitans, but yeah. any other time at St. Soldiers Youth Forums, very rarely would they come. So s- slowly I was stop- Maharaj was almost pulling me. And you know how we talked about running away? Yeah, yeah. I think this was the first time I felt like I wasn't running away you're running towards I was running towards yeah. you know running towards Maharaj Maharaj is pulling me in and so yeah 18 years of age is when I started to uh, understand a bit more yeah I remember when I was 19 years of age Vasaki came and went and there was other people that were Munni who had come into the same Sangat and they kept that case into Kamrit and I remember that year in 2008 I decided to keep my case Okay. And when I kept my case, I decided I don't want to drink alcohol anymore. Yeah. And I kind of went cold turkey with alcohol and meat. I think alcohol, I can't really remember when my last drink was. I remember my last meal with meat in it. It was a KFC Wicked Zinger meal. Yeah. And I only remember it because I kept the box. I kept, <coughs> the, kept the box in my bedroom for about six, seven months thinking this is iconic. You know, it's part of my history. After a while, it's just attracting ants. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I kind of had to get rid of it. Yeah, but it was but a pivotal point moment though, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, and you, you addressed that straight by keeping that. Yeah, yeah. So I started keeping my case in April. And up until that point, actually, it was, it was funny because Baba Seva Singh's mom, who we would lovingly call BG, yeah. she'd always be like, he's going to keep his case, he's going to keep his case. I think she clocked me at one point when I hadn't had a trim. Yeah. And so she thought I was keeping my case, innit? And when she's like, you're keeping your case, I was just hanji hanji, innit? got my hair cut the weekend after and then when I saw her from a distance I kind of hid I yeah, was like yeah. I don't want BG to get mad at me because I'm not ready to keep my case yet but when I did eventually keep my case I started wearing a part she was so happy so over the moon constantly like you know um, giving me a hug and telling me Sakya, Baba Hanam Singhji etc yeah. and that was great and it was in 2008 April I kept my case March April and it was November that I took Amrit 
So I was only a couple of months into keeping my gear. So yeah. when I took Amrit, I was such a novice. I didn't know how to put Kashar on. Yeah, yeah. didn't really know what Nithrim actually was fully. Yeah. You know, so when I took Amrit, I took it not in the sense that oh, I am now ready to become an Amrit Dari and live a like, Gurusik life, whatever. That I know a lot of people wait for that. And I have conversations with people who say they want to get to a certain point before taking Amrit. But my argument is, scrap that. You don't know how long that's going to take, well, you know? Yeah, well, we've done a number of these podcasts and yeah. the story that comes up is Jagrat things. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's, that's one example, isn't it? So for me, it was like, Amrit is the first step. Take Amrit. Yeah. If you if you know deep down inside this is the right thing to do, take it. If you waver, you waver. You know, Maharaj is always exactly. forgiving. But take Amrit, try to live life as a Gurusik and see where it goes. And yeah. Maharaj Gerpa, here I am, what, 14 years later? Yeah. Still still on, on the Khalsa Sikhi path, you know? Yeah. So talking about, obviously, you're coming into Sikhi, uh, you know, with obviously things and things like that. St. Soldiers Youth Forum. Who was doing the talks there? Who was... It was a mix of people. I, I can't remember. So Baba <coughs> Seval Singhji's nephew, yep. Maharaj Singh would do a few talks. Suki Baba would come down to do a few talks. Yep. I think that's when he really got into his com- com- comedian type yeah, yeah, talks. Yeah. And then <laughs> it's actually quite funny because he would sway between being a comic and you'd know because his, the style would be smaller. But if he's doing a talk and it's comical, he'd just do that. Yeah. If he's doing the Sikhi talk, he'd wear like that big Dumala then, oh, right? Yeah. And he did a, a Keetan Devan, right? And uh, so he did this you know, Sangi Shabbat's about 30, 40 minutes later. There weren't that many people there and we weren't singing along. <laughs> he said, I don't know whether it was a joke or if he was serious, but he said, normally when you when you when I do Gitan like this, you know, I always feel Maharaj through the Sangat, you know, there's so much energy, whatever. Yeah. I'm not feeling it here. Okay. And uh, he just said it, he goes, I'm not feeling it here. And I was thinking either he's joking or he's serious, but I can't tell. But he's got his Dumala on. So I think he's I think he's serious about this. Um and I was like, it's it's a cold day, you know, we're not we're just here to listen and absorb, but he didn't feel that vibe. But but Suki Baba was one as well. Uh, Kuljeet Singh, I think, came down for in the later years would come down, but a lot of it was local, so the Midlands lot, lot. and I can't remember everyone's name because at that point yeah, I, yeah, I didn't I didn't make a relation with them. I was about to say you don't have that interest with them. You're there to listen to them. Exactly. But not actually have a relationship with them. Yeah, yeah. There was one talk called "Once We Were Kings." Okay, yeah. That was a good talk. You know, talking about Maharaj and Jeet Singh's time, yeah. Hari Singh Nalawa, all these type of things, and I think those type of even right now just saying it, might, uh, you know, I'm getting tingles, but. Because I remember the feeling, yeah. you know, that when when I learned about these things, it was like, wow, we can be kings. We were sovereigns. Yeah. You know, I, just last week I was passed out and like in in a park, and yeah. and now you're telling me I can be a king. Yeah. You know, uh, and and so little talks like that were what made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to carry this on to you to the next question. Is on. You've mentioned seat camps. I've seen obviously you go to boss camps and things like that. On speaking about seat camps, you speak about seat camps a lot. How did they shape you as a person? <coughs> and when did you start going to them? Two, <coughs> 2010. <coughs> okay, so, so you took you on within 2008. Yeah, and so the question you should be asking is, why did it take you two years? And I think that's a, that's important to dive into because what when I took Amrit, yeah. I, I thought, do your thing, Nithinim, occasionally go to Gurukara, yeah. uh, and then that, that'll be it. And then when people were like, come to Sikhi camp, come to Sikhi camp, at that point, even though I had taken Amrit and I had very much sort of enrolled onto this path of Sikhi, I still felt like, th- you know, are you guys drawing me into a cult? You know, yeah, yeah. is it something that it's not? And it, no matter how many years, you know, people would say to me, to about two, three years, I think people were saying, you know, it's good, you got to come to it. I'd never went. 2010, one of my friends was like, look, I'm going, just come with me, like, in it. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. Which camp? Sikhi, Which camp was it? Boss Sikhi camp, okay, 2010. Yeah, so S2I wasn't around that year. Yeah. Um, n- never been to Karl's camp. In, in, the, in, that, in the space, in, since 2010, I've been to 15 camps. Okay. 
most of them boss some of them s2i yeah and one of them was a uh, basic Sasaki as well okay and and for me when i went to my first camp 2010 it was such a great year okay and even the katha now if you listen to it the gita that you listen to it it was amazing kuljit singh was there did some fantastic katha i do love kuljit singh and i, I got to yeah, give, so give him a yeah. shout out one thing i always love about kuljit singh katha then probably kind of the same now is that the bairag that he comes in yeah of course and I, I always kind of make a joke. I don't even, I don't even know. If I've told him this joke, so you might hear this on the podcast. But uh, I loved the way that he would sway from being calm, serious, emotional, calm. And I would say, if Kuljit Singh ordered this, ordered a sort of food from a menu, you know, he'd say, for starters, I would like golgappe. Yeah. And, and then for main, I, I would like paneer. You know, getting really yeah, emotional. Yeah, yeah. I would like paneer. <coughs> and then the beer kicks in. And then for dessert, I want rasmala. Yeah, know? exactly. You know, and 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 that was great because uh, he was doing <coughs> that from the heart. And when somebody does katha from the heart, you know, their emotions will sway a little bit. And and for me, that was the true true moment that I realized, you know, what, this sikhi has such a deep connection. Hmm. And 2010 camp, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you lose the ras a little bit. And I think somebody talked about when you're at camps, you it's kind of like having mendi on your hands after a after a wedding, okay. and it fades off, you know. And they give warnings to to campers sometimes about the camp blues and whatnot. The rust I felt from 2010 camp is still with me today, 12 years later. Right. Yes, I had blues, but just thinking about it, just taking my mindset, going back there and what, what it was like in that Daman, what it was like Amrita time, mm. you know, it, that is still, that is a thing that's keeping me rooted in the sense that I can't sway away from Sikhi because something's there. I felt something, yeah. you know, and as the years progressed, there were some camps where I felt really outplaced, misplaced because 2010 was good because I got to do a bit of group leading server with Suki Baba and we had some real fun doing that. The next year, they decided to scrap me as a, uh, as a group leader and I was uh, just a camper and I, w- I was going through the motions anyway. Uni had just finished, yeah. didn't know what I was doing, couldn't find a job. Um, house wasn't that great. Anyway, I was bickering with, with my mom about something. And that, that year I felt misplaced, but I still felt like I have a home in Maharaj and I was in Darbar more often than not. Yeah. And then every year since, I'm, I've been able to do seva. And by doing seva, you can really work on yourself. And you interact with people a lot more than you would if you're just a camper. Of course. Uh, and so group leading, I think, was my kind of calling at the time because then I could have these conversations with the next generation, learn from them. And it would encourage me to learn more about Sikhi, Gurbani, so that I could share with others as well. Yeah. And as the years went on, it, the camps for me were absolutely, you know, the, the things that kept me rooted. Every year I would look forward to camps. I would use my annual leave for camps only. Yeah, yeah. There were kids camps as well in Warsaw Plek that I would uh, do a bit of seva f- uh, as well. But I think the adult camps were the best. And, you know, if anyone's listening in, I know during the pandemic, camps kind of took a hit. Yeah, yeah of course. You know, uh, we d- they tried with but virtual, the, but it's not the quite the now. same. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're back now. And, you know, if you're coming into Sikhi or if you're into Sikhi and you've never into a camp before we saw sport for choice you know we've got s2i which two camps here and they do yatra as well you got boss camp i th- don't think it's going to start up again this year maybe it maybe will maybe it won't basic sasiki are doing camps Khalsa yeah. camp are doing camps you know there's so many camps there's some abroad in canada just go to a camp because sometimes you you know sikhi is one of those religions or faiths that you practice within the world right and we're not prescribed to go to the jungles and just meditate yeah, yeah, however exactly. having said that there's nothing wrong with scrapping everything just for a short period going to a camp and just you know practicing sikhi what is actually sikhi waking up listening about your itihas you know doing sangat and just being surrounded by gulsiks yeah. and that week will give you such a buzz it will keep you grounded especially if you're wavering if you're lost like i was that that's what camps are there for yeah you know no i totally agree with you they're there to energize your batteries yeah, yeah. Nice. I find that with just the association with sadhus. 
you know, you're just like, I've not had it for a couple of years properly. Mm. But when they're here for about months and months, you're buzzing. And then you come to that point where you're like, they're going to be here in two months. It's taking ages. Yeah. But it's that, it's that sort yeah. of thing. And the association with good six is massive. We've all been to those camps where initially it's daunting. You're like, I've got a week away from home. I'm not sure how it's going to go. I was 14 when I went to my first camp. I went to the AKJ camp in Bangor in Wales when I was 94. And, uh, but it was amazing. Yeah. Was absolutely yeah. amazing. You never forget it as well. I, I, yeah, I never forget it. It was the yeah. first time. Because we don't come from an AKJ background, my family has never come from that background. Mm. Saw the camp, said I want to go, and they you're there at the end by until about you know two in the morning, whatever, knowing that you got to get up in a couple of hours to do your knitting and whatever. The talks were amazing. It's the first time you you can actually sit with a load of good six of your own age and go, what what's this? I, I didn't know about this. What's this? What's this? And you realise you're in a microcosm in your own cities, and you think you know quite a lot and yep. then you, you meet someone and it just blows your mind and you're like I didn't know about that and then they go oh have you read this in the Dasselgrant what's that have you read this in the you know in the Slovenia uh, uh, of Baigurdasi what's that and you just mm. you know as a 14 year old my mind was just blown so Harman Singh mentions that actually um, <coughs> he goes when he first met Jagarraj Singh so Harman Singh has been to India yeah. to the Dere right um, Taksals and whatnot, and he was ready to sort of uh, <coughs> school Jagarraj Singh and right? <coughs> And then Jagrad Singh with a lot of Nimrata, he, he pulled out a book of, and, of his notes about Vedant. Mm. And he goes, oh, Singh, I don't know if you read this or not, but I, you know, this might be good. And so for Harman Singh, that was a kind of a, a spiritual slap in the face because he went in with his ego and Jagrad Singh went in with humility. And, yeah. and th- when you're sharing Gyan, it's all about sort of humility. And of if it wasn't for camps, I guess some of the, the Vijana that I do now, I, I would never come out, you know, because mm. you can only do so much within your own mind. You need to span some ideas off with people. Yeah. But uh, one of the sort of things I always talk about with campers, like just give you a snippet of how I group lead. They give you a group leader pack and I took that in the bin. And I'm like, I'm not using this pack, you know, yeah. not, you don't prescribe what I can and cannot talk about. We are going to go with the energy. So with my groups every year um you know we always try to do something different say out in the sun walk on the grass you know try to do a team building a bonding exercise using things i learned in the workplace yep. into sort of how i sort of lead the group um making sure that their questions are being asked correctly because sometimes you can give the correct answer in the wrong way yes of course and push people away Hannah. and and you've got to really be sort of get rid of judgmental and it's not easy on first impressions because i've got i was joking to bali i've got what people would call a lazy ass face okay you know it's just a it's just very lazy people look at me and i remember one time is that like the resting bitch face that we call yeah but okay. i didn't want to use the word bitch <laughs> <laughs> but okay. um but yeah so one baby came up to me right i never met in my entire life and she goes but you look really upset yeah or sleepy are you okay and i was like nice to meet you too ben you know where are you from then you know it's it's, it's one of those and the people always think that because of my face it's just my face like yeah. i really wanted to get a card and a t-shirt made saying it's just my face didn't let me do that so first impressions not great second impressions are a bit better yeah. but yeah coming to back to the point i was making them um, i always at some point i always like sit down and I, I say to the group i go let's have an open conversation okay sikhi is is great but uh history is painful yeah yeah Massive. what do you think is the saddest time in sikh history right and ask that question and maybe you could perhaps give your opinion what do you from your opinion what do you think the saddest moment in sikh history is there's lots of points. I don't really want to pick one. Yeah. It's not a point for me to 
spend my beans and get a bit ugly over something. I, yeah, I could talk yeah. about it, but yeah, yeah. But but there's loads, right? Yeah. And and a lot of people would say, okay, Jar Sahibzade, Panjim Bacha Shahidi, Nawab Bacha Shahidi, etc. Uh, all the holocaust that we kind of went through and i said look all of these are very good answers you know very very emotional very very upsetting when we talk about these things but i think and this is my opinion i might be wrong mm. i think the saddest moment in in a sikh history is when sri guru har krishna sahib ji yeah. left their sarir yeah. and said baba baba bakala baba se bakala yeah up yeah. that point up up until guru ladore yeah was the saddest moment in Sikh history. Oh, 22. Yeah, when they had 22. Yeah, yeah. And why was it the saddest moment? Because there's no other point in history where Sikhs didn't know who their guru was. You know? <coughs> if you yeah. think about it, there's no other moment where we did not know who our guru was, right? And at every single point, either Maharaj is in their sort of physical form or they're in Gurbani form, right? But we mm. know who our guru is. And But that moment, nobody they didn't know who the guru was. And and so the point I tried to make across to the to the um, campus at the time is, look, we're really blessed, isn't it? We didn't have to go through that period. Yeah. We didn't even have to go through the transition because Bhai Gurdashi talks about it all the time. And um, after Panjami Pasha Shahidi, yeah. Shemi Pasha changed everything. Yeah, the changed everything. They changed everything. And people people confused. And they they had that dubda in their mind. Is that really the Guru? And the same with Guru Gomez Singh Ji. We didn't have to go through that. We just have their beautiful history of what they did while they were here. And then we have Guru Granth Sahib Ji Maharaj and it couldn't be simpler, 10 jorts in, in Guru Granth Sahib Ji Maharaj, yeah. right? And so we're very, very blessed because we know who our Guru is and never forget that you know who your Guru is. Mm. So if ever you struggle with your Sikhi, ever you struggle in life, go to your Guru because your Guru, you know, Thakur Hamara Sad Bolanta, right? Maharaj mm. always speaks to you and so your Guru is always there. And so it's little anecdotes like that that I've developed over the years and they, they would never have come to me if I didn't have those various conversations with the various different people. Yeah. With regards to the camps, obviously you talked about the pivotal moment being 2010, uh, 2010 with Singh's talks and things like that. Have, have there been other defining moments at camps? I know you said you've been a group leader, but not as a leader, as, as a student, as a, somebody who's gone there. Are there certain talks or certain things that have happened that have just gone, that, that's it, that makes sense, that's, yeah. that's clicked, yeah. that's something I'll never forget. Yeah, yeah, so Baisukh uh, Singh. so when I went to S2I camp, actually he was there for one of the boss camps before they split up, but... It was a lecture room upstairs in, in the Wells campus. People who have been there will know. All wooden. And he did a talk about Sikhi. And he, he broke it down in such a way. And the reason I connect with Sukhraj Singh, it's not not the accent. Yeah. <laughs> Anything but the accent, right? Sorry to the Yorkshire people, but <laughs> it's a bit hard sometimes listening to you. <laughs> but with Sukhraj Singh, the way he breaks down Sikhi is so logical. Yeah. But it still has a connection. So it's very it's very interesting, like when you're doing Pratchara, there's very different ways you can do it. You can get emotional and sway back and forwards, or you can have a very logical structure and go, you know, this, this and that. Like you're almost hitting these points on, on a PowerPoint presentation. Yes. But he has this way of doing both. And because he's done Sangat Mahapurush as well, he has a lived experience. And so he did one talk about Sikhi and the essence of it. And then he loves to break down you know, what's the soul and the various different things of the soul and how your karams are different and the arrows analogy, yeah, yeah. etc. And I think that point was really good because not only did he break down everything from a theological perspective, which was useful for me then, not so much for me now because I try not to delve into that because I'm more about the lived experience now. But at the time, it settled the mind. Yeah. And no talk had settled the mind uh, as more as much as Sukhraj Singh. And I made the notes, I still got the notes from that talk. And... What I loved about that was that afterwards, I said, Paji, you mind having a talk? He goes, yeah, let's go for a walk and have a talk. Mm. And afterwards, people are like, why are you talking to Sukhraj Singh? I'm like, 
what, is, he, is he got is he got something <laughs> you know does he have the covid pre-covid but they're like yeah but you can't talk to him you can't approach him like i said who says who right no and i always have this naive naivety in sikhi in work you know, no matter how senior somebody is i just tr you know see them as another human being yeah let's just go have a chat and and um at that point sukaraj singh was everyone would think that he was untouchable and approachable but i would have the best conversations with him and he would always say if anybody wants to have a conversation have it and then over the years that eased that sort of stigma really sort of eased out and more people were speaking to sukaraj singh and he supported so many people but i think he was one of the pivotal moments but i think for me as a not a group leader not as a sevadar just being part of the sangat i think the biggest moments that really got you know grounded me as as a gursik and kind of made that connection with Maharaj was uh, during Sukhasan okay. and um, Prakash in the morning. So the way when they bring Maharaj from Sachkhand yeah, yeah. to the Singhasan, that moment when they're just singing Maharaj's Vardiyayir, you know, yeah. that, I think that moment, if I could snapshot anything and just repeat it for the rest of my life, that would be it. Mm. You know, um, especially in, in the evening where they're like, You know, just singing that and like, and that moment, it's just, everything just makes more sense. And when you're doing Peridar Seva as well, it's dark, you're cold, you've got this massive city, so you don't really know how to use it. Yeah. But you know that Maharaj is here as well and you're not doing better of anyone. <laughs> No, exactly. exactly. Mara, they're giving you the they're giving you the duty. Exactly, they're Mara, bestowing you an opportunity on yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. It's Mara, not you the other way. Exactly, Mara is doing kirpan on you. <coughs> you're not doing any better yeah. whatsoever. The Mara just giving you this opportunity to be a gurusek, you know. Yeah. And so it's little little bits like that, and and like I said, they stick with me. And and there was one point as well where every camp I would get the blues, albeit the ras would stick with me, like I said mentioned earlier. Yeah. But I would still get the blues, and I think it was actually after I was married, 2015. After that. Hmm. I think one of the one of the Gursik sang Gurmere Sang Sadahanale. Yeah. And I was singing that and then when Maharaj left, I didn't have that bairag that I had for the previous four or five years. Because okay. every time Maharaj you leaves you do the Jagara and then all of a sudden you just get down. Yeah. You felt like Maharaj is gone. And I was like, Well Guru Mere Sang Sadahanale and that yeah. really resonated with me. As soon as I went home I went to Matatek at the Guru Kara and, and that bridged the gap because for a few years I felt that camp was here and Guru Kara was here. Yeah not realizing it's still the same guru yeah, you know exactly. and and so as a student i it took me a while to learn that and and the point i'm trying to make is that sometimes it clicks straight away yeah, yeah sometimes course. it takes ages and it's so obvious you know everyone's heard that pankti yeah. but it, to actually have that lived experience and realize that maharaj is always with you you know it takes it can take a lot a lot of time to the, the experience is the most important yeah so philosophically we can read everything you can comprehend and understand it but until you have that moment, it doesn't mean a lot. Yeah, I, that's how I find it. It, you, it doesn't mean a lot. I can go through the practical theory and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So some people that's brilliant because it just clicks. But the majority of people they have to experience it. Yeah, it's like how if you explain to a child what love is, what what heartbreak is, and things like that, you don't know until you've experienced it. Once you've experienced it, you you know the emotions, you know the feelings, you know what to avoid, you know what to do, and it's that sort of thing. Yeah. It's the same once up Prem comes with Maharaj. Exactly, sort of and, and Sikhi is a very lived experience. You know, if you want a religion where it's every, everything is theoretical, and it's just the case of believing one thing and then everything sorted after you die, yeah. pick another religion. Exactly, you know, definitely. do not pick Sikhi, because Sikhi is a liver religion that you work at every single day. Exactly. Like if you're trying to get in shape at a gym, you have to go there. Yeah. You have to physically do something. And it's the same with Sikhi as well. And uh, one <coughs> thing I love about Sikhi is they always talk about the concept of Kamai. Yeah. Which is effectively your spiritual learnings. And and that puts so much more sort of an onus on you to do something and not just wait 
for a handout. Yeah. There's so many people that Marbles that can bless you. Um, I wouldn't say it's not impo- not possible, but no. do your gamai and then, yeah, exactly. and then everything. Yeah, exactly. Says that, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, sometimes people miss the point, and I can understand why the world is very distracting yeah. in so many different ways. But I think you know, if it, the best advice always given at camp is. It's your life. Every second is an opportunity to do kumai. Yep. Do as much kumai as you can. Yep. And and it will not only benefit you after life, but it will benefit you here. So coming back to the point you were talking about earlier, yeah. you know, I, um, you can. One thing I love about Sikhi is that you can meet God now. You yeah. know, uh, the, if 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 you went into a sort of a, a hall and people are selling religion, and the first question I would ask is, well, when when can I meet God? And if anyone ever says, well, after you die, I will be like, you'll keep your religion, mate. I don't want that. I don't well, want that. I'm impatient. I want God now. But Gurbani says, Gurbani yeah. says the same, doesn't it? Gurbani says that basically you cannot meet God after death. Yeah. So the whole, the aspect of this, you know, just because it passed away. Actually, if you yeah. read Gurbani, it says you can meet God within this life. That's the only time you can meet him. Exactly, yeah. You know, and, and we read it, pay brav the monarch of the Hodia, go with me, hit everybody. This is your, your only opportunity, not after you die. Yeah. So it's like you said, you have to earn it, work on it, and, and that's how it works. I'm going to move on to the next question, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <coughs> we've gone over seat camps, but one thing that you do, which I, I found really interesting last time I spoke to you, is your work with um, um, diversity and things like that. So, tell me about the tell me about how you promote inclusion and well-being within the workplace. So, I'm very fortunate. In 2015, yeah, I, I was working for one high street bank. Didn't really enjoy my time there. Yeah, and then I got a job at another one, mm. and I got married at the same time. So these two actually coincide together. So not only in my life aspect, I'm starting to see life from a completely different perspective. Remember, growing up with four sisters, three how many sisters? Have I, I forgot to count. Three sisters, right? <laughs> three sisters and a mum surrounded yep. by women I was shielded from a lot of the problems that they went through right yep. I had absolutely no clue about menstruation for example right yep. but obviously when you're married when you're with this person all the time you start to learn about these things yep. and uh, so I'm understanding from her perspective once we get married what it's like being a woman just yep. generally right so that's opening my eyes and then at work everything's changing up at the bank I, I, I still work for now uh, that I started in 2015 because Inclusion became such a heart of everything that we do. Now, inclusion used to be one of those things that, Jalo, yeah, we'll have some samosa, we'll have some samosa vasaki, that's inclusion, yeah? yeah? But now inclusion is more to, to do with, well, okay, well, let's understand your background, let's understand the barriers that are in place, let's understand the biases that are in place, let's level the playing field. Not, not what the Tory government say, that, not, yeah, that yeah, ta- yeah. not that type of bugwas, like, but the proper, yeah, leveli- the proper leveling up, right, from an equality and equity perspective, right? Yeah. And so I'm learning about all these things, and, and at the same time, well-being is at the heart of everything. So the bank I work for champions potential, and they want their customers and their colleagues to thrive because they know that if the customers aren't doing well, we're all screwed. Yeah. But if our colleagues aren't doing well, then the bank's going to collapse. Yeah. So they, they, they really champion potential and make everyone thrive, and as part of their sort of values, yeah. um, you know, inclusion and well-being are part of that. So as the years went on, the more and more I learned at work, I would try to bring back into our spaces, right? Okay. Family and social media was my sort of avenue to do that. Um, and from an inclusion perspective, like, you know, gender network, you know, making sure that uh, all the biases, the violence against women for one, is one thing that I'm trying to speak up against more because okay. people don't understand how a joke can turn into actual violence, right? Um, Black Lives Matter is the only hashtag I've ever had on my social media. Yeah. So sorry for all the good six that are spreading hashtags, but I, I, I think Black Lives Matter fits with what my 
sort of political stances because it's so encompassing. If you get Black Lives Matter right, everything falls into place. QAnon Q- Q- people are going to hate you. They, yeah, they followed me a long time ago. Yeah, but, right. uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that, you know, justice for black people, justice for women, hmm. LGBT, you know, community. Yep. I'm part of the Rainbow Network now. I help with the comms, you know. I'm just trying to say that, look, any marginalized community I will relate with more yeah. than anyone else because I am from a marginalized community but at the same time I will understand the privilege that I have of being a man for example yeah. and help women as well so that's inclusion and then from a well-being perspective the bank understands that okay mental health comes first if your mental health isn't in the right place yeah. you're never really going to progress in your career and so that really started to open up my mind from a mental health perspective again I wish I knew now what I knew when I was younger. Of course, yeah, yeah, I am sorry. Because it would have saved a whole, whole lot of years of heartache, but much, such is the Kirdana. Maharaj, yeah. this is the way that I had to go. But now I'm u- utilizing these things around well-being, mental health, physical, mental, social, emotional, financial, yeah. and trying to just be an advocate of all these type of things. So if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see that some of the hashtags are like male ally, in diversity and inclusion, well-being, mental health. You know, mm. these are the things that I stand for now because I know that if we get these things right, everyone will benefit. If we ignore them, we'll all continue to suffer. Yeah. Well, I, I know with regards to that, um, you've been on like a, a couple of talks with Seek Mind and things like that, yeah. which have obviously focused upon that sort of thing within the Seek community uh, and, and the Grace community as well. Uh, a really interesting topic that we spoke about last time when I, when I was in Leicester was the the focus on diversity within a workforce, but the actual thing that you need to consider is diversity of thought as well. Yep. Because I see it in my workplace where they'll go, right, there's a load of white people in here. Let's bring one woman in here, bring a brown person in here. It's diverse. But their views are exactly the same as the people that they've replaced. Yeah. The views are all more towards the right. They mm-hmm. don't give a shit, really. They say the right words to the community but their thoughts are all the same. So it isn't diverse in any way. And it really hit me because I never really thought about diversity of thought. Um, so that was a really interesting point to me. So is this part of your daily routine? Do you, do you talk about these things? Do you assess these things in like a sort of HR sort of way? So I don't work in HR, but the, <coughs> the great thing about the bank is that, you know, these values of inclusion and well-being is embedded in everything we do. So yeah. there's no such thing as uh, just one person in HR that looks after inclusion, because then that would be a disaster. And a lot of companies still take that approach. Yeah. They just shift it onto that person and say, you do this, and then we can say we've done this. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. You need to, it has to be a sort of systematic change in the mindset where everybody takes it upon themselves to be responsible for inclusion. Yeah. And so uh, the bank I work for has inclusion champions, of which I am one. They have uh, well-being champions, of which I am one. There's yeah. thousands of us. And they also have ethnicity allies, of which I am one. They have male allies, LGBT allies, you know, yeah. all these. And I, any chance I get, I sign up. Mm-hmm. And so from a bank-wide perspective, sometimes I do talks in different uh, departments because some departments might not have a brown person. Yeah, yeah. And so when they're talking about inclusion, they're just talking about it between themselves and they really need somebody else to come in and talk about it. So I can sometimes help with that. Um, and it's the same with mental health. They don't know the perspective of how how it differs when somebody's from a South Asian yeah, background. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of help out with that. In my day job, it's a part of my goals. So my my day job is a business manager. So I look after 250 staff who look after 9,000 customers that bring in millions, right? Yeah. And although I'm not customer facing, I know if I do my job right, everyone's going to succeed. And as part of my job, I make sure that inclusion, diversity, well-being is at the forefront of everything that we do. Yeah. And so the senior leaders that I work with, I'm working in a team of senior leaders. 
I always make sure that we look at it from various different angles. And I am the only opener that sits in that sort of head office team. Yep. And so that's a great position because I know that they want to do better and I want to help them do better. Yep. But at the same time, it helps me develop as well. Yep. And anything I learn, I can implement in our community as well. Yeah. So what do you say to those people who say it's a fad? All, the, all these things are fact. Say, okay, I am talking more, more towards you, right? Say you're the Republican Party in America is where they're on about Wade versus Roe, they're on about females' rights, they're on about all sorts of stuff. doesn't really happen. Uh, or you've got a quite a diverse Tory party, Kwasi Kwarteng, Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel, got quite a lot of females in there. But the diversity thought is exactly the same. Well, yeah, so the political party in the UK is is, is absolutely, it's, it's tokenism, it's yeah. model minority, isn't it? So it's it's a case of, you, like you said well, earlier. They, say, they, they look at it and go, look how diverse we are. Yeah, so they, they need to be challenged. I, th I think if you if you live in an environment where feedback and challenge is widely accepted yeah. in order to, for us to all progress and do better, it's going to succeed. If you have it at the point where you close the door because you're on that side, so therefore nothing you say is going to matter, it's never going to succeed. And I'll give you an example. There was a, a, a thing that came over from America and he was talking about climate change. And, yeah. and, you know, the best way to have the conversation is, okay, you're a climate change denier, right? Because you've seen a graph that tells you climate change isn't real yeah, uh, yeah. and it doesn't bother you. Fine, right? The pro pro proposal from a sustainability point of view is let's go green. Let's yeah. be less reliant on fossil fuels, um, get more green energy and... Renewables, yeah, things exactly, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so the question is, well, what's the worst that can happen if we did this, yeah? And it's almost like a Dr. Pepper advert. What's yeah, the yeah. worst that can happen? And sometimes you got to look at it from that perspective it was the worst that can happen if we make it a level playing field for women yeah you know and then that's when you really start to get the the issues that they have it's like well men might get uh, we get this emasculated no well men so men might get um less opportunities or something right or, or for example if you're a white male so i was i was doing a project right about um being more ethnically diverse and gender balanced as well and we set ourselves, the bank set ourselves targets to be gender balanced, 50-50 yeah. by 2030. And then from an ethnicity point of view, because I represent London and South East, rather than the 12% average of the, na the nation, we went for a 33% average, which is okay. more, yeah, yeah, yeah. more representative of London and South East. Very ambitious, right? And I'm working on this project <coughs> with a middle-aged white guy. Really nice guy, really into diversity and inclusion. But he said one thing, he said one thing to me, and he said, I realize I'm part of the problem right because he's a white male That's to which I, my response was we've inherited the problem yeah yeah you need to get away from the i'm part of the, we've inherited the problem and we're all part of the solution yeah. right and by us doing what we're doing it's not going to make like a target on your head yeah. like you know the fake target was that baby's name who she, uh, kate hopkins okay yeah. she put a target on her head and she goes this is how i feel and then somebody responded saying this is a perfect analogy because that target's not real and you put it there yourself yeah. you know um, so a lot of people feel like oh they we're being attacked yeah. but in essence we're just making it a level playing field and if anything it's better for you because whereas before you might have gone through life strolling through all this privilege that you had we would remove away the privilege mm. it doesn't make you worse off it makes somebody else better off yeah. and as a result it makes you better off because now you will step your game up and be a better person yeah. so it's actually a win-win for everyone especially with climate change yeah. you know let's say carbon didn't exist right what's the worst that can happen of having electrically powered cars if anything they're better they're faster yeah. they're nicer you know um and they don't stink up the clog up the place making it making it hard to breathe you know these type of things so there's always going to be people that don't see into these type of things and they are the reason why society probably hasn't progressed as much as it should, right? But I think really, you know, the, the biggest challenge that you can get is say, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, what are you afraid of? And starting the conversation from there. 
I think the issue there was you were talking to somebody from America. Yeah. yeah. And the majority of people I speak from, they are really close-minded on those issues. Yeah. You just have to see what's going through their courts, what's going through their, what's going through, you know, their uh, House of Representatives. You know, gun yeah. You know, we can touch upon it, like gun control, Roe v. Wade. You can talk about um, the the trans bill, the don't say gay bill, the things that are going on in America. You're just like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's so different about them and Russia? Because Russia does the same thing. Mate, yeah, preach to the choir. And then they hate the Russians. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's nonsensical. And if you step back and look <coughs> at it, you see that this is, is, is all a bit weird. Yeah. And I remember I made you write down the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think yeah, I've got it here. Wait, 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 hold on. You've got, you got it down, got right? It. Episode, uh, season four, episode 17, uh, super, something superstar. Superstar, okay, see? brilliant. So that, just for people tuning in, we were going to record this podcast last week, but we ran out of time. But um, so we're recording it now. But I, I, I told you about this episode, okay? So I recommend it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's on Disney Plus, yeah. season four, episode seventeen, called Superstar. And in that episode, it's completely different to any other episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer because it's like almost everything's on his head. Okay. So the dork in there is now Superstar. He's a movie actor and things like that. And you're watching it, you think, oh, what's going on? In that episode, a couple of seasons, a couple of episodes before, there's this one sort of monster type of creature that's neither human nor vampire. It's kind of in between. And he's the only person that could see that this is all just a sort of mirage, right? It's, it's all f- f- fake. A holographic universe. Yeah, it's all, it's all fake. And, and, and it turns out that a witch had put a spell on everything, right? Okay. And I'll remember that episode because when I watched that episode, I didn't want to be like the dork that became a superstar. I wanted to be like that monster that could see through the lies, yeah, you know? Okay, yeah. And I think the biggest issue that we have now on a social, political level is who's telling the truth and who's lying, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, and, and so you should never get to a point where you're backed into a corner that you're forced to believe this lie because you associate with a particular political view. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and uh, the Karl Sapant is always going to be Niara as long as it doesn't associate with one particular thing. Yeah. You know, everyone can have their little truths, everyone can have their little lies. Yeah. But you don't ever associate with this completely because you're always going to be misled. Of course. Do you know? And I, I think that's that's one another thing that I try to get out there a bit more. You know, research more about politics, what people are saying, what yeah. people's views actually are. Try to sit back and then think of it from a, a lens. And, and there should be a yardstick in which you measure progress by. And my yardstick is actually sicky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, how how clo- how better are we all living? How closer are we to get to the end goal, which is Maharaj, right? Yeah. And if we're getting distracted by all these worldly things right or nonsensical things like don't say gay build exactly. you know then you're, if you're you're more you're you're more in tune with the no, don't say gay bill but what's really happening is that you're you're pushing the don't say viagra bill yeah. <laughs> because you're, you're not going to do any simran because you're thinking about that yeah. right you know so it should always come down to sikhi and things that can make generally the world a better place and a better relations with uh, other people specifically marginalized communities and allow you to practice your sikhi as well yeah well that's wicked coming on to obviously your social stuff Right, a bit, bit of a bit of a wording here. Um, I'm going to ask you this one first before, before I ask you the question I was going to ask you about mental health. But tell me why you find it is important to share stories on civil rights and other issues on social media, which may, many of which people try not to pay any attention to. <coughs> it's a really, really good question because, again, <coughs> the people that do follow me on, on social media will know that I will post about a variety of different things, yep. right? Uh, it can range from like a cat video to, um, you know, rape cases, for example, you yeah. know, just to show you how varied it can be. And the reason I speak about these things is because there's two ways you can go through life, right? There's the way that the people think the world is, is that you've got the oppressor and the oppressed, yeah. right? And a lot of people think that, well, actually, I c- if I just keep my head down, close my eyes, I will never be oppressed. 
and I can just coast through life. But the reality of it is that if you wake up, you realize it's not oppressor or an oppressed. Yeah. It's an oppressive system that we're all partaking in. Yeah. And we become the oppressor or the oppressed at any given moment. We fluctuate between the two. And so what, what I try to do is, again, coming back to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is just try to sit back and think, well, what's actually going on here? Yeah. You know, what's, what's the bigger picture? What's the bigger picture, you know? And sometimes it means that you're having conversations <coughs> about things that people aren't, and, right? So some of the things I share are things that are trending. You know, because as it, as it stands, certain things are in the news that w you're forced to speak about because everyone else is. Yeah. But then there's other things that people aren't aware of, mm. you know, like um, come back to the history point. I hated history in high school. The best thing about history in high school is that they made us put wallpaper on our books. I don't know if they ever did that at your schools. Wallpaper in your books? Oh, mate, mate. It was one of those where like, they were like, we're really going to decorate our books now. I think the teacher was trying to be... Um, How poor was Wolverhampton, man? Down, yeah. How bad were your books? Yeah. Well, it was just <laughs> normal exercise books, and she was like, we're going to make these stand out. And so she like, put wallpaper on one year. We only had my sister's purple lilac wallpaper, yeah. so I had to put that on it. But the next year, I had dinosaur glow-in-the-dark wallpaper, so I put that on. But anyway, coming back to the point of history is that there's certain aspects of history that if you actually talk about them, it yeah. helps paint a picture, it helps connect the dots. Yeah. So I think Steve Jobs says you can't connect the dots going forwards, yeah. only backwards. And so if we look backwards in our history and we start learning about that, we completely understand why the world is where it is yeah, yeah. and which direction it's kind of going in. And so from a civil rights point of view, I try to be a voice for the voiceless, you know. So, yes, we... Oh, CM Punk. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like obviously there's so many things going on in Punjab with the Farmers Bill. I yeah. try to be vocal about that. But then you'll also hear me about black people struggle going yeah. on um, in, in America or the Yemenese people. Or the Yemenese or know, what's happening in Somalia. Or exactly. I, I remember all these things, on, not just that school, school Q, Q, you've got the polit political stuff that's going on here, the welfare states. I remember all yeah. these sorts of things. And I, I, I always say, like, like for example, the anti-vax one was a big one the uh, last oh, couple yeah. of years because people shy away. Not, not a lot of people buy into the anti-vax, right? This, yeah. I would say it is a growing number purely yeah. because of the way in which it becomes sort of tribalism court type mentality but not a lot of people the majority of people do not buy into it right yeah otherwise you wouldn't have had 30 odd people getting the vaccine and being perfectly okay but a lot of people will shy away from the conversation because they feel it's too sort of hot, it's too much of a hot topic too much of a sensitive topic yeah and it might invite behaviors or conversations that you perhaps don't want Right, yeah, yeah. which is a fair point, and I can see why people put their heads down and shy away from that. But at the same time, although you're not you're you're you know you're shielding yourself from what you don't want, <coughs> you're missing out on what you probably could have, which is a great conversation about scientific advances. Yeah, you know, a great conversation about uh, inequity within the healthcare system. You know, a great conversation about where we're going with society, how we work together, how the political system isn't working for us, yeah. you know, and all these type of things. So if you just shut it all down, then you can't have these wonderful conversations that expand your mind and make you see the world differently. Yeah. When you start seeing the world differently, you, you are in a position to change the world, right? But again, if you just put your head down, you're just going to continually be kind of like the sheep, in, yeah, in, yeah. you know, just, just, just follow the crowd and, and things like that. You follow the crowd, but you don't. You don't deal with the noisy minority as well. Yeah. And they continue to grow and influence. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we've seen it in history, <coughs> far right. We're kind of where we are now is because yeah. we let the far right voice take hold. And, you know, like, for example, Brexit. Yeah. People are like, I don't want to talk about Brexit. Because you didn't talk about Brexit, what happened? Yeah. Brexit, <laughs> right? Exactly. But if we all actually spoke about it, from if we all had the mindset of thinking, okay, we're going to look at this logically. We're going to look at the pros and the cons. We're going to see what's on offer here. What side, what's the narrative on both sides? I think the vast majority of people, when they really moved away from the sort of rhetoric of uh, just immigrants, basically, yeah. like the racist yeah. rhetoric that was out there, 
I think they'll see right through it and think, well, actually, we're never going to be in a position better than we are now. Yeah. So why would I vote for it? Why would I chop my own leg off, right? But people didn't see it that way. And, and it's because of the lack of conversation that the governments can actually control the population because they know if they feed you a narrative and it's a mo- if it's emotive enough, yeah. you will not care whether it's true or false. Yeah, and that's what and happened. I, and Three, I, £350 pa- million pound a week or whatever it was. It, exactly, yeah, we all got conned. And the even day, after, day after the vote, <coughs> Nigel Farage straight and, goes, and, yeah. ah, actually, that's not the case. <coughs> and such is the way now that like, I think there's a famous quote saying it's easier to com- it's e- easier to fool someone than convince yeah. them that they have been fooled, right? Yeah. So the trick is not to get fooled in the first place, right? And you're only going to do that if you have your guard up. Yeah. If you have that logical, rational sort of shield in which you digest information and you can actually critically analyze it. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I try to do through my social media. I look at it from various different angles and I can appreciate other people's opinions. But yeah. what I can't appreciate is outright lies based yeah. on based on nothing. Right. Yeah. Stardust just in the air, just make it up out of thin air and never back it up because yeah. people need to be held accountable for the things that they say and do. Yeah, yeah, I totally And agree. accountability goes out the window if you let people run riot with faults and false stuff, you know. Yeah. No, is, is there? There's always going to be those people who will say to you, "You're only putting this up because you're woke, or you're this, or you're that." But I know for me, it's a different thing. That's why whenever I see a decent Vice video that isn't even on, I, I send you a link because mm. I'm just like, especially with that one with the missing girls in Balochistan and people going missing in the political st- unrest. Yeah, for me, I find it very interesting, uh, and it's, it impacts on the work I do as well. So I'm thinking it might be similar to you where you're getting all this external information. One, it helps with your diversity work and inclusion work. And secondly, it's just, I'm interested in this. Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, you know, the, the aspect I always look at it is look, you arm yourself because yeah. something will be taken away. And the narrative we heard in the pandemic is your freedom is being taken away. But how do they define the freedom? My ability to go to the cinema. Yeah. I couldn't care less if the cinema closed free. down. I, and, or somebody said to me, you can't go to cinema anymore. I'll be like, Jalo, that's a good thing from a Sikhi perspective. <laughs> you know, the only thing that you should worry about is your Sikhi. Yeah. And is that being taken away? You know, and sometimes it, to some extent it is because if your mindset is somewhere else and you're completely engrossed with something on an emo- emotive level, yeah. you ain't going to dedicate any of your time to your Sikhi. So if, in essence, you might think that you're your bulk if you will but you're not you because your sikhi is being wait, yeah, squandered yeah. away right and gurbani talks about it, stop squandering your life away yeah. in terms of the 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 word woke i think that's very interesting woke and cancel is obviously yeah, a very yeah, topical thing topics. and i would say that woke is never a title that you give yourself yeah. it's always a title somebody gives you and it's interesting because um you know is it a bad thing to be woke well, i was about to say it's, it's <laughs> you know you look at certain individuals and they consider woke as a dirty term they put it on you you're just woke you are and you're just like no actually what I'm trying to do is make sure that everybody can get a piece of the pie yeah not that just the people right who are entitled always get the opportunity what about those at the back you know yeah, and it's yeah. that sort of thing and for me being woke if somebody goes oh you're, you're just woke why because I want that individual over there to have the same opportunity like I said on question time this week they said uh why is it that it's we can all house a Ukrainian family? Mm. Why can't I do that for somebody from Yemen yeah. or Algeria or, or Syria, you know, Syria or, yeah. or one of these people? Where was the opportunity for that? And Dom Jolly came on straight away and said, yeah, there's only one reason for that. And I think you can all see what the reason is. Yeah, yeah and it's that sort of thing. But, but that was, somebody said to him, yeah, but that's really woke. No, it's not woke. Yeah. It's leveling the playing field. And that's what, that's what again, a, a lot of people do is they use these sort of words or phrases to shut you down yeah. and shut down dialogue. 
And again, what are they so scared of? <laughs> you know, what they're so scared of? A, a fairer world where people are here, yeah. you know, and, and all, all of these things will come back down to an irrational fear of other, i.e. somebody brown, somebody black's going to come here and they're going to do this, this and that. But yeah. all these stereotypes are, are, are not backed up by reality. Yeah. Um, and I think with, with the sort of Brexit, mo some of the towns that were high voted on Brexit, when they sort of did polls about it, they said, what's the biggest issue in terms of Brexit is going to solve? And they said the migrant crisis, you know, migrants coming here doing yeah. these things. But they were all from areas where there was hardly any, any diversity. Migrants. There was any no migrants. migrants. So yeah, yeah. But the so areas that did have the migrants voted against Brexit because yeah. they saw the benefit of migrants coming in. Yeah. But it's typical colonialism, isn't it? They co colonise the whole world and then, they and then they take all the wealth and they're like, yeah, you guys can't come here now. And, and so... so you lot want to go everywhere else, you're going to get that back, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. So that's the world we live in. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I'm going to go back a step because I, I just want to pick, pick that question in with the social media stuff. Uh, one of the questions I left out was, why do you feel it's important to op openly talk about mental health, especially within the South Indian community? I think the question itself kind of gives you the answer, yeah. you know? Um, it's like, we openly talk about so many things. The things that we don't openly talk about, we say, why is it important to openly talk about yeah. this? Right? It would be a weird question to ask if we already openly talked about things. Yeah. And the reason I talk about mental health is because we don't openly yeah. talk about mental health. And, and I don't know whether it's a... I haven't really nailed it down what's the reason, what's the pinpoint reason why. It's probably a, a variety of different factors, right? It's a cultural Cult taboo, isn't it? Cultural taboo, not knowing how to have the dialogue, not knowing where the dialogue is going to take you. You know, there's so much going on. But I generally am a very expressive person because I remember somebody saying that you are the universe experiencing itself. Mm. And I figured, well, okay, if I am, then, you know, I would like to know how you're experiencing life and I would like to share how I'm experiencing life. Yeah. And that's just generally, you know, um, how I kind of live and express and use my social media pla platforms and when I was younger when my mind wouldn't stop writing down things would really help and that eventually went into blogging which has stopped now yeah uh, but I use my social media I was almost like an online blog documentary type of thing yeah and part of that is my mental health so the more I learned about mental health I thought wow this is amazing I want to talk about this more and share and I found actually the one one way to get people to open up is to share your own experiences so yeah. there's no point us all getting together and I'm saying okay tell me about your mental health it's, ne it's, it's never going to work and I've been to a group therapy session where they were quite young a little naive everything was textbook and they attempted to do that and it was just silence people are not going to open up they're not going to drop their guard unless they realise that this is an open safe space yeah. and the best way to do that is to talk about your mental mm -hmm. health experiences so for me everything I go through the things that I learn I, I share even right now on my LinkedIn every month I'm given a mental health update okay. because a couple of months ago towards the end of 2021 I said to Bali, I said, look, I can't wait for this year to be over. Yeah. And she said, you said the same thing last year. And I thought, wow, I, I had two crappy years. And yeah. I didn't even know about it. That's two years of my life, completely crappy. Why were they crappy? Yeah. My mental health wasn't good. Um, last year, I ended up, was it last year? Yeah, last year, I ended up taking a month and a half off work. Yeah. With, just with, you needing know, time for yourself. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. A very depressive state, a yeah. lot of anxiety. I just needed that. And it was great for me having that time. But that was the first time I've ever taken time off to yeah. sort of support my career. Prior to that, I would always tell people that you know, you can work through it. And um, I always tell the anecdote of the time, a couple of years, going back a few years at work, I just finished my shift, which was meant to finish at eight, finished yeah. at half eight, had a customer on the line, not the bestest, not the easiest to speak to, so a little stressful. We were on the third floor, I got in the lift, pressed ground floor, doors closed, I looked to my phone, I'm thinking, okay, 10 minutes to get to the, to the tram to get home. Then I started daydreaming, thinking about all sorts of things, my career, what's going on, how am I feeling, whatever. And all of a sudden, I kind of, half past eight was when I got into the lift. And then all of a sudden, I looked up and I thought, I'm 
what's going on, I was still in the lift. And I looked at my watch, it was 10 to. Okay, so so 20 minutes I was still in the lift. First, I thought the lift has broken down. Yeah. Then I realized I got into the lift and I didn't press the ground floor. You just stood there. So the doors just shut and I just stood there. And I thought 20 minutes, you know, th this is like a really, s I mean, I'm not in a great place right now. Yeah. And Maharaj is good, but at that time I was able to do things to get myself into a better place, have an open conversation with my line manager. And I, I managed to do that without taking any time off, without any therapy. Yeah. A couple of years later, you know, you'd think that story would be like, yeah, this guy's very proactive, but life doesn't always work that of way. Of course, yeah. You know, and, and, and so at that point, I had, to, I had to take time off. And taking that time off is really good. So, yeah, so I try to document my life now every month, how I'm actually doing, just to be more vocal, to let other people know that, you know, it's okay to struggle. It's okay, these are the things I'm going through. If you're going through the same, let's connect, let's talk about them. Uh, but at the same time as well, for me as well, never to let it slip because the moment we let mental health slip, we all struggle. Have you, uh, you probably heard about the three storms analogy. So, well, the three types of people during a storm. So the first are like, <coughs> the storm's far away. Yeah. They see it coming, they make preparations to make sure it does minimal damage. Yeah. Second type is the storm's here doing its thing and they start preventing it from doing further damage. Yeah. Right, tie up the fences, for example. But the third type of people are the storm comes you see it coming, comes and then goes, and all of a sudden they're just left with the damage. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> That's me, obviously. Yeah. So what? Well, so the trick is to be the first person if you can. Ideally, the, even the second person is not bad, but the third person. The problem with that is from a mental health perspective. If that storm comes and goes, you don't know how much damage it's done, yeah, and it, you might just be stressful a month or two. But that stress, that damage it's done, it might take years to get over. Yeah. You know, or work through rather, and so. It, the more we talk about mental health, the more we normalize it, um, the more people are likely to talk about it, do something about it and get help. But at the same time, I will add one thing with that as well. Just because somebody's gone through mental health struggles does not make them the ultimate advocate, champion for mental no. health. No. And I think as a community, especially the sick community, we need to move away from that person went through mental health struggles. They're okay now. Let's get them into a place where they can talk about it and help other people. It really doesn't work that way, you know? No, because I've, been, I've been through it. I've been through it. I was off with... Yeah. Three months, six months, you know, I've, I've done those sorts of things. Hmm. I, I don't talk about it, I can't champion it, because I can't tell you what I went through. <coughs> yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's one of those things, and sometimes when you put people back into that position, yeah. they have to relive their own trauma, and they might not be fully recovered, and it's worse for them. Yeah. And so you mentioned I do some work with Seek Your Mind and Drakki yeah, um, yeah. and uh, uh, Seek Forgiveness and whatnot. Yes, I do, but you'll never see me signed up to one and continually doing this work because my, my priority is my mental health. So where I can, I help out. And um, like this year, for example, I had to just start stepping back and say, "Well, actually, sorry, it's a bit much at the moment. I've got a lot on at work, and I don't want to get back to the point where I get to the end of the year and it's another crappy year." Yeah. So sometimes I, I pull back, and I think you know that acceptance that yes, people do go through things. They are able to speak about it, but at the same time, they're not. Yeah. You know, just make it such a such a great environment where you can help. Step step aside, step back as well. Mm. And obviously, you've you've been through a lot of things and whatnot. And it, if you lived in another world or another parallel universe where mental health wasn't a stigma, mm. you would have had countless people to speak to. Of course, you've had so many avenues to get help, and you would have taken it. No, well, you know, you know? I, I, the, my, you know, you have not mental health, and like you said, it's a stigma. So you turn to really few people. Like, you know, Manpreet Singh, his mm. sister, his his parents, my parents, you know, you turn to a few people, and, and, but at the same time, it's a case of, you've got to keep quiet about it, and that sort of thing, it's, mm. it's, 
And like I said, the more proactive we can be about it, the better, the more normalized as well. Like I w- I'd have no issues going into work saying, oh, I slept funny, my back hurts. Yeah. I want to be in the same position where I go into work and I say, oh, I'm not having a great day and I don't feel very good, you know? Yeah. And th- that being normalized, because the, prob- <laughs> the problem is when you say it into a, in front of people that don't know how to deal with it, they're like, crap, what do I do? Yeah. You know, either it's awkward, I just get out of this situation or I try to do something, but it might make it worse. Yeah. And so we got to get comfortable with having these conversations, you know, sometimes it's just a case of listening, just yeah. being there. Sometimes it's a case of actually, you know, encouraging them to, to do something about it as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, the more we're there for one another, the, the better it is. And, and just let's break the stigma around mental health. Uh, and hopefully through the way that I speak, like I'm on social media. I think I've got something like 2,700 followers, right? Bali's got like 28,000 followers, right? I'm not bitter about <coughs> it. We did have a race at one point, but I, I gave up on that <laughs> because I think she's won that race, I know. But um, I get more interactions on my Instagram than she does on hers, yeah. right? And, and the reason, f- in terms of uh, messages, not necessarily likes. And the reason for that is because I'm very open and honest and I'm seeing more and more people messaging me and t- just having a general conversation. Yeah. Um, again, not everyone feels this way because my persona, uh, my perception of me might not be that great for some people. So they might feel like I can't talk about it. Yeah. But the people that do, they realize that, okay, this is just another guy who's happy to have a conversation about anything. Yeah. You know, and people do reach out and open up and then we have great conversations. And and some people say, yeah, just you talking out has encouraged me to do this. And I'm yeah. like, well, that's great. And now you're doing this. Tell people you're doing this and yeah. then you'll have a knock-on effect. And it's a domino effect. Yeah. You know, it will all help break the stigma. We'll all help encourage other people to get help. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Right, sorry. Um, next question was, what advice would you give to the next generation? Next generation. I know you just covered bits of it, but yeah. what, what would it be? I guess... Because um, yes. I've, got, I've got three daughters, and the shit that they've gone through, they've, they've gone through some, some bits, but... And I always say to them, you've got to be open and honest, you've got to talk. You know, you got to, uh, I'm not somebody who stigmatises, I'm not going to. Mm. support them in any way but what would be your advice to the next generation who are coming up and yeah. having to deal with these problems whether it's to do with alcoholism whether it's to do with uh, feeling you know mentally vulnerable and alone or anything like that what is yeah so it's, it's, it's one of those where advice yeah. given the situation you're talking about if we're talking about alcoholism I can give very specific advice yeah. but if I'm giving generalistic advice that might apply to more than one situation I would say you know, really work on understanding your worth and your purpose. Yeah. And I I used to do Sunday sermons on Instagram. I don't know if you remember them. Worth and purpose was one of them. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is your worth is, you know, how do you value yourself? Yeah. You know, your body, like, because obviously I've been through the point where I didn't value myself at all. I didn't care for my body either. And I know a lot of people might be in a similar position, but... <laughs> That's my life. <laughs> That's why the chips and cheese are there every yeah, meal. Yeah. But sometimes that is when you're... There's a, there's a song by Ben Howard called Depth Over Distance. Yeah. I have no idea what he's talking about, right? But for me, when he says depth over distance, I'm talking about the internal journey is more important than the outward journey. I thought right? it was a different song altogether. <laughs> but yeah, so like uh, for me, finding my worth... Yeah. And, and you get this a lot with religious people, you know, because they always find some saviour who loves them, yeah. right? 
because that's that's all it all comes down to love. Sense of belonging. Yeah, yeah, it comes down to love, doesn't it? And people uh, look for it in someone or something, right? Yeah. But it comes when it comes down to it. Figure out your worth. You know what are you actually worth? And from a sikhi perspective, you know we are obviously that drop in the ocean. Yeah. You know the soul is no different to God. So. You know, don't let anyone tell you anything different, right? Yeah. Every human being, regardless of caste, color, gender, you are worth something. Yeah. Worth something more than we even know, right? And then the second thing is your purpose, right? What are you here to actually do? Now, what I mean by that is, again, you could use it on a worldly perspective. You know, your purpose. If you're ac- if you're in academics, absolutely go 100%. Get you know A's everywhere, yeah. every time, right? Whether you have the support or not, I had no support. When I was younger, I had no guidance, nothing like that. So that's why my academics slipped a little bit. But then when I had slightly better mentors, it picked up a little bit. And Maraj Kirpa, you know, I got a first in my mathematics degree. Yep. So this is the same kid that got 4% at A-levels, ended up with the first and average like eight, 89, 90% throughout yep. my whole degree. Um, and then I got a degree in my master's as well. So from academics, you know, I managed to pull it back because I felt I had more of a purpose when I had better mentoring. From a work perspective as well, you know, don't ever chase money. We know that that's wrong, but don't ever feel that you can't earn that money. Yeah, yeah. So don't ever look at a company and think, oh, I can't be a sort of CEO, you know. All these things on a sort of worldly perspective, that gives you a bit of purpose. What I'm here to do, what I'm here to achieve. Definitely have them goals, but the ultimate purpose again, yeah. is to sort of merge back with, with, with Vigro, right? right? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, to go back home, that lost soul waiting to be reunited with his beloved. So really, really continually check in on yourself. What is my worth? What is my purpose? Yeah. And what you'll notice is that if you really consciously think about your life and what you're doing and where you're going, yeah. in every aspect, it will just get better and better, right? Some things we know we can't control. Yeah. As you know, you've been through things, I've been through things, right? Yeah. Completely out of, out of, our, out of our control. And sometimes they knock us down and they make us feel like we're not worth anything and we have no purpose. But just, you know, really go back to, you know, what it means to you. And for, again, for me, it was exactly. a sticky perspective, isn't it? And that will help ground you. Yeah. And then if you're more of a grounded person, then you're constantly going to develop. And you're constantly, like the conversations we ha- we're having about inclusion, for example. Yeah. The main benefit of that is that if I learn about these things I don't know about, it's going to make me a better person. Exactly. It's going to open my mind up, you're, right? You're, uh, uh, Adopting, you're putting more into your toolkit, aren't you? That's it. If you're armed, and they always say, with knowledge, knowledge brings power. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So th- uh, that's a basic sticky quote. Did you get the hoodie? I didn't get the hoodie. No, but, no, no they don't no. fit me, do they? <laughs> <Nothing> <laughs> fits me. Yeah. Everything's yeah. too small. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. I, I, m- I remember one point having a conversation <coughs> with Jiraj about that, and I said, knowledge is power and poison <laughs> because it, you know, d- depends how you use it. Like arm yourself, for example, <coughs> the Lavada can help save your life or end <coughs> your life if you hold it on the wrong end yeah do you, know, do you know what i mean so it's, it's it's one of those type of things but definitely try to strive to be a better person today than you were yesterday have that groundedness of your worth and purpose and then really focus yeah and if you have no mentors right i would always suggest finding one yeah right and if, if you can't find anyone then go to guru Granth Sahib maharaj and they'll bring one in your life 100 percent. yeah you ask maharaj for anything and they'll bring it and I've maharaj kirpa in, in so many times in my life i wanted something yeah and they have given it me and sometimes it's like, okay, I'm taking the mic now, because was it was it then they then that they right? Yeah. <laughs> at this point now, I'm, I'm getting. You continue to say, but you never get tired of. Yeah, yeah. You never get tired of giving. Yeah, exactly. Maraj never gets tired of giving, and at this point, it was like, I got to sit down and earn it now. And mm. it's almost like a, a, I was given a bit of a credit here in terms of the things that Maraj had given me. So I'm trying to reclaim it back by doing a bit of gamai. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's the advice I'd give to young people, and and the future is as bleak or as bright as you want it to be. Yeah. Um, and because again the world isn't going in a great place and sometimes me and Bali we worry about the future generations we don't have kids so our worries aren't the same as perhaps yours might be but we still absolutely worry about the world that we're going to leave the next exactly, generations yeah. Yeah. but the next generation this is your world for the taking you know make it yours and 
make it a great one. We, we had that same conversation in the car on the way here. So, you know, very simple things, but we were on that, you know, one person like, I brought bamboo toothbrushes because of this. If I can, you know, we've got to make little changes, at least start with something and you move on to this, this, this. And it's like you said, because you do think about whether it's your kids or not, it's what am I leaving behind for the next lot of people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, well, just fact, I didn't know that Bass Siki used that. That's from House Party 2, that is. Oh, that's probably where they got Queen, it from. Queen, Le- Queen Latifah does a rap on House Party 2. Two things I remember from that. I was a 13-year-old kid watching that. And uh, like you said, when you're a kid and you're looking at how other minorities go through stuff, so most of my films were black films. That's what I watched. I remember the two quotes in that. One was, time waits for no man. And the other one was, knowledge is power. And they obviously had the quotes from Marcus Garvey, Heidi Selassie and things like that. And, uh, but, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're powerful things as a kid when you read that and you're just like, yeah, actually, that, and that is what Good Gormsley basically said. Learn about all the other faiths because you've got to arm yourself with that toolkit. So when they give you the bullshit as well, yeah. you can counter that going, no, actually, I've read that. It doesn't say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> well, closing up, the one thing I want to do is, I know you said, you know, you've, you've done some stuff for Seek Mind and said, actually, I need some time away. I need myself. But one of the things that we're doing with this is actually asking people to go, can you give us your social media network so if people do go through this sort of thing, can they even just drop you a question or do whatever? And yeah, it sure. might be that you go, I can't help you and I'll put you in touch with somebody else. But I just think because of the topics you've talked about, it's, there are going to be lots of people in that situation who go, actually, I feel like this, but what do I do? Where can I go? So if you're happy, will you be able to share some of the links with, with them? the podcast <coughs> yeah so the two main places to connect with me is yep. Instagram yep so it's my handle is hsbutoy which is my surname so h-s-b-u-t-o-y yep um, and that's on a more sort of personal social media level now if you do follow me you if you see something that you don't like that's fine don't just unfollow me thinking that this month is not great yeah, challenge yeah. me on it you know that, that's <coughs> the one caveat I would say it's a private profile now I will happily accept any followers are real people yeah um and i'm happy you know have any sort of dialogue if it's a genuine and people want to learn on a professional level if you want to look at the how we can work together about inclusion diversity well-being in the workplace yeah harpreet butoy b-u-t-o-y you'll find me on, on linkedin as well and what i share more on there is things that really impact people in the workplace so professional or personal social you know either way happy to connect with anyone that resonates yeah no thank you for that um the other thing I just want to ask you before, before I go into any questions for us, is there anything you want to elaborate on what you've spoken about earlier? Is there anything I've probably cut you off at some places and you've gone, shit, I wanted to say something else. Or, is there anything else you want to add to what you said? The only the only other thing I was going to say, <coughs> there's probably a few things. What I didn't do this time around was write down my answers. I thought, let's just let it flow naturally, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's it's a decent environment and uh, this isn't scripted or anything like that. But one of the things, we spoke about mental health and sicky, right? And uh, sometimes it's not two different things. They're very yeah. intertwined. And uh, your mental health will sort of tell you how far you're going to go on your sicky. If your mental health wavers, the first thing that goes is your sicky. Yeah, of course Your nithinim goes, right? So um, when we do these talks at Seek Your Mind, I always say, look, in, in Gurbani we read all the time, E mana mirea, tu sadaraho haranale, you know? And how is your mind going to stay with Vaiguru if you're struggling with it yourself, right? Yeah. And even even that Pankati itself, Ir Mana Media, right? You don't say, oh, my mind, if the mind isn't, if the mind, and if you are the mind, right? Yeah. You wouldn't say that, would you? But the mind is actually separate. So, so think of it like of sometimes it the, the battle with your mind is like you, your true self versus that mind. Yeah. 
And if you focus on it from a mental health perspective, your sickie is going to go leaps and bounds. If you waver on your mental health, then your sickie will suffer as well. Yeah. So definitely, for anyone listening, that is a good sick. You know, the hard times are okay. Absolutely, Gurbani Kirtan is going to be the thing that ultimately heals you. But to get to that stage, sometimes you have to do other things as well, yeah. which might not be always deemed as sicky, like therapy, for yeah. example, like counselling or whatever, taking time off for yourself and, uh, and things like that. So yeah, just having the two together and then you'll see it goes leaps and bounds. And, and that's from a lived experience. You know, again, I always say if I knew what I knew now 10, 15 years ago, I'd be a completely different person. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we measure it, don't we, in terms of sicky, like how far I've gotten. And I feel I would have gotten even further if my mental health wasn't dragging me back so many times, right? Um, but yeah, th that's the only other thing I really wanted to mention. I don't think there's any other points from the questions that you said. You sure? Yeah. Anything else you want to add? There's no, like I said, there's no limit on this. And if there is something, because like I'm mindful, I did cut you off a couple of times. And I thought, shit. I'm, you no, that's know, fine. When you when you cut me off, I, in my head, I wrote down, make sure you mention this when he stops speaking. No. And then and then I then I did. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. That's fine. Have you got any questions for us? And the only question is, can Perdisi? Miriara, right? Because uh, <laughs> that's that's a bit of a Bollywood uh, Bollywood plug there. Yeah. When are we going? When when are you going to let me interview you? What about your life? Man, what's the point, man? It's it's like having a a conversation with like Fred West or whatever. Are you going to listen to us, all the path I've done in my life? Man? Yeah. There's nothing. There's no, everything that I had to offer to the next generation of other people is is out there already. It's either in books or the or the website or the gutter or whatever. I've got nothing else to give. If yeah. I if I do a talk now, I'll just get cancelled. Cancelled, yeah. So I, I, <laughs> don't, I don't want to do that. Maybe we'll save you to last. Maybe on the next uh, <coughs> podcast, which we won't name uh, because it's uh, confidential at the moment, but maybe on the next podcast, I'd love to be able to interview you. And the only reason I say that is because you have a mindset, right? There's certain things, like if you think of the mind as a switchboard. What, what the issue is, right? Oh, okay. The, no, I'll, I'll, no, no, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you this cancel, straight away. Cancel. The, yeah. the issue is that we have started this podcast with those people who are positive role models, whether in the Punjabi community or the Gursik community. I'm neither one of those. Um, and my life is so far away from what Gurmuth states it should be that I think if I'm preaching, it's a charlatan. So I can tell you my story and I can go... <laughs> This is the shit I've been through, and this is how what life has impacted me on. Yeah, there's enough my, sob, my, there's enough sob my, stories my, on there. My, my point is right. Say so you've got like a, a board with lots of switches on it. Yeah. Yeah. We all have a mind. Yeah. Right. You have a mind. I have a mind. But if if the mind is that board, certain things are switched on and certain things are switched off. Yeah. Yeah. Some people are so blessed they have so many switched on, and you just you're so envious. Like, how is this so natural to you? How are you able to do this and whatnot? And there's certain traits that you have certain ways in which you think and i'm not talking about how you live but how you think yeah. that i think is really beneficial for the youth uh, and and maybe i'd like to if if possible in the next podcast i, th I don't series. think i don't think that'll be an issue i think yeah. Singh's already trying to gear that up anyway um i don't mind you're not going to shoot whatever Fantastic. questions you want. yeah you've heard it here first i'm going to interview camper this um, uh, this is camper this is last day on the world he's going <laughs> to shoot himself tonight <laughs> interview done no, no I, don't, I don't mind but yeah. i i just think the things that you lot of all, you know, there's, there's a reason we are the flawed, flawed and foolish. The work that you lot do is impactful and the, the talks that you lot go on about is impactful. I'll be 10 minutes in and that, that's what I do. I, um, I put up a thing the other day that the funniest people are the most broken people. Yeah. And that's basically how I see myself, so I don't really want to share that. Okay, cool. We'll, <laughs> we'll wait for you to get a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> 
and then when you are we'll uh, reconvene again i'm not looking for a sort of um you to pour your heart out yeah looking at more from a mind perspective but whenever, whenever you're up for it let's book in a date when black men win the next premier league we're up for it man <laughs> i'm well up for it <laughs> that ain't gonna be long now so coming up this season so we can do it then cool no, saying I just want to say thank you very much on behalf of the, the Lord Foolish and Fantastic Podcast I've learned a lot today I learn a lot every time I talk to you to be quite honest or I'm following your social media and I think it's I always say and I say it to my kids it's really important because they're on Instagram and things like that the stuff that you put up is really it's my sort of thing I love it and um, I think it's really beneficial for other people. And I, I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Nice. Thanks well, for I having me. I don't think you had a choice. We just rocked to put your house on. Yep. I really appreciate that. I was, I was going to say thanks for having me, but thanks for forcing me. Probably <laughs> yeah, closer to the for, truth. Closer thanks, to the truth. Thanks for forcing me. But I think, it, I think your work needs to be shared. And I think what you're doing is brilliant at the moment. Yeah. Well, Marlis Girpa, like, you know, like I said, at the moment I'm going through a period where it's a bit private. And that's for my own mental health. Like yeah. Twitter was a very toxic place when I was public. Yeah, yeah. I'd always get sl- slandered or slated or whatever. But yeah. now I'm just reconvening, regrouping, having a good year under my belt. And then who knows where I might be able to... Where it goes from there. Op- yeah, open this up a bit more. Yeah. yeah. No, no problems. Right. With regards to the podcast, I just want to say thank you very much and close up for Fatih. Bye, Guruji Kakalsa. Bye, Guruji Ki Fatih.